This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here with Jeffrey Simpson and, of course, Terry South. Hello. Another Friday. We finally made it. Who'd have thunk it? What's what's with the jacket? I'm all dressed up today. I yeah. wanted to... I feel like I, I missed the meeting. No, you went to the meeting. Yeah, I know. It was a great, uh, great day, folks. It's because it's Friday... We're going to we're going to really get into everything today. Mm. We're going to dump all of the stuff, all the news that we are tired of talking about. We'll get to some movies later in the show, about two hours from now. But it seems like Trump had a press conference. A little bit. Something. I was actually unaware that happened until later in the evening. It, well, was, it was a good afternoon for me. Oh, that's right, because we were in a meeting, so we weren't hearing it. But Trump uh, unleashed the Kraken. We tried, yeah. Many think he, you know, he lost it. As what, what CBS opened their evening news showing that uh, the president showed us the length of his fuse, 28 <laughs> days, you know. <laughs> and that's what's amazing. He's only been in 29 days. Yeah, 29 today. So you can't even refer to the first 100 days yet. Not yet. Because he's only been in 29 days. Yeah. But in 29 days, he's had a really full... Agenda. Yes. I mean, he lost Flynn. He announced the Supreme Court nominee. He, he may need some sort of volunteer fire brigade because, you know, fires every day. There's yeah. some emergency. They're running around the White House. To, but he says, he says everything's running great. Yeah. It's running well like oiled a well-oiled machine. Well, they say that the, Finely the, tuned. the first 30 days are the most difficult to get through. Yeah. Or is that, I think actually I think that, maybe that's the that, first million is the toughest to make. Okay, yeah. that's something different. It's a different. It's a different metaphor. Unless your dad, it's like gives marriage. It to you. Your first twenty-eight days of marriage is the hardest twenty-eight days. It is. Well, I mean, that's what they say. Okay. I mean, you're the expert. Those people. Those people say that. You wrote a book, so. I done. <laughs> I wrote a book. By the way, on February seventeenth is the day we celebrate My Way Day. Because of the song, right? No, because Donald Trump yeah. is doing oh. it his way. Didn't he, he at the uh, inaugural ball, he danced to this song? Yeah, he did. I mean, really, this song just epitomizes him. Is there any doubt that he's doing it his way? Oh, no. Well, is it him? Is it the Heritage Foundation? Is it Mitt Romney's playbook? Is it, is it Bannon? Bannon? It's, it, there's some decisions there, but yeah, sure. But it's a well-oiled machine, whatever it is. Many are like... If this is well-oiled, you're in trouble, my friend. So we'll get into all that fun. Plus, also, we'll have a guest coming up um, who, who is, I think can help us a, a lot. Because, and I want to ask him about the media beatdown because hmm. he's a member of the media. Yeah. But he also wrote a book called The Fix, How Nations Survive and Thrive in a World of Decline. And part of the premise of his book is you need somebody that is willing to go take unconventional solutions and make them work. Which it seems like that's got Donald Trump written all over it. Right. 
So we'll get to that. Jonathan Tepperman will be joining us in a bit. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump's chosen replacement for ousted National Security Advisor Michael Flynn has turned down the job. Two sources familiar with the matter have reported Robert Hayward, a well-respected retired admiral and U.S. Navy SEAL, turned down the offer in large part because Trump would not let him bring in his own team, according to sources. Flynn uh, resigned earlier this week after reports surfaced that he had lied to Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, During a press conference Thursday, Trump said that his decision to seek Flynn's resignation was simplified due to the fact that he had a, quote, outstanding candidate in line to replace him and acted as if that was a done deal. And then uh, yeah. it's not a done deal. So seems like a rule of thumb would be you don't announce the next guy till you know the next guy's on board. It's the chickens and eggs and hatching and <laughs> yeah. Uh, the White House did not immediately respond to requests for comment on that story. President Donald Trump has chosen R. Alexander Acosta as his second nominee for Labor Secretary after the fast food executive Andrew Putster withdrew his uh, name on Wednesday. Apparently, that was the motivation for this press conference that went for an hour and 17 minutes yeah, or whatever. 77 it was minutes. Acosta is the first Hispanic nominee to Trump's cabinet. He previously served as the Assistant General Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division under former. Uh, President George W. Bush in 2011, Acosta testified before Congress to defend the rights of Muslim Americans, where he argued that we are a nation built on principles of freedom and high on the list of freedoms is the freedom of religious expression. Hmm. Acosta formerly served as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida, currently the Dean of the Florida International University College of Law. Oh, hold on. Acosta is not a, just a billionaire? No. What? He's not. He's a lawyer. Okay, but but he runs like some wrestling federa- federation or something. Um, not not fully vetted yet. Okay. He might. Okay, he maybe something will um, come out. Though, uh, uh, what Miss McMahon did get through on her? Did he have a difficult divorce? I don't think so. There's no videos from Oprah from the '90s, okay. so this might be clear sailing. We don't know. Sweet. Not a single representative from the State Department was reportedly present for the White House meetings with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this week. Hmm. Instead, Trump's son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner, who has no diplomatic experience or regional expertise on the matter, was in the meeting and had a central role, according to CBS News. Acting Deputy Secretary of State Tom Shannon was officially scheduled to take the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's place in one of the meetings with Netanyahu, but the ones reportedly shut out completely by the uh, of the White House gathering. A Guardian article Thursday reported Tillerson appears to be increasingly sidelined by top Trump advisors on key foreign policy decisions and was denied his choice of Elliot Abrams as his deputy. Remember we were talking about this whole shadow cabinet yeah, and yeah. all these deputies that have been assigned to the cabinet members? Some of them don't want these people and they're not being allowed to replace them and that's not sitting well. Tillerson currently in Germany. And not here for other. Oh meetings. yeah, with Angela, Angela Merkel. I have a funny story about him coming up. Oh, and finally, always check your pockets, Matt. Oh, every day. Why? What End am I looking day, for? End of the day, you're you're, you're, you're changing money? clothes, whatever. There's a guy named Bob Hoffman learned the hard way after his wife donated one of his old shirts, and he had eight thousand dollars stuffed in the pocket. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Sounds painful. Maybe an overreaction to the 8,000. The man from Long Beach, California, keeping a secret stash to surprise his wife, Linda, with a dream trip to Italy after he retired in 2018. Uh, but he had that, He had the money in the bank, mm-hmm. but he pulled the money out, 
because there was a family friend that was having some financial issues. He was going to help them out. He was trying to add back to the stash, but he was keeping it in the closet and this shirt in the back that he didn't wear. And then his wife came through looking for clothes to donate. She just grabbed a bunch of stuff and he went, yeah, sure, take that one. Then he forgot the money was in there. Uh, this whole thing happened. They donated it to Goodwill. They, uh, yeah, they ran down to Goodwill to get the money to, find, to try to find it, but they couldn't find the shirt. Later on, a Goodwill worker searching the warehouse found a bin of men's shirts, including the orange one that mm-hmm. the, shirt was, the money was in. And re- the couple recovered the cash and offered a fat reward. Goodwill refused. Really? They wouldn't take it. Goes beyond their mission, I guess. That's Goodwill right the there. The Hoffmans compromised, and they threw a pizza party for the entire staff. Wow. Wow. That is some goodwill. By the way, I just reached in my pocket and found Uh a sealed envelope. Ooh. Maybe there's $8,000 in it. With my name on it and a little smiley face sticking its tongue out. I'm now opening. That is real. Probably the only real sound effect we've had on the show. The hermetically sealed envelope. This could be huge because it's a thank you card. Uh So maybe. (laughs) There's cash in it. Wow. Okay. Oh, there's wow. like wow. Is that two hundred? Two hundred dollars. So, Terry, how much do you want to bet? Matt <laughs> knew exactly you. what was two, in there. Look, look two, two hundred, two. Yes. we could split that between the staff. We're wow, very cool. that is two hundred dollars. I'm guessing he knew exactly what was in there. Yeah. He wore his nicest coat. Yeah. He <laughs> is, is trying to coat. impress us. You should see what I get out of my nice coats. Wow. You know, this is probably from one of his quote. Air quotes in the air here. Speaking engagements. It kind of is. So and this is their, you know, I'll put that slush in fund. My, my pocket. Pizza right party here. for your staff. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I hope. Uh, going on here. I hope nobody donates that coat to Goodwill while you go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm wearing my coat. That's why I'm wearing my coat. See, I never reach into my pocket and yeah. find two hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. It have, never happens. But right then, you said. You better check your pockets. Yeah, and right, check. I had, wow. That's amazing. That is crazy. And pre-planned. It really isn't. Yeah. I, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> I had no idea what story he was talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't stick check money. Check your pockets. What have you got in your pocket? I've got $3. Okay. But I placed those $3 in my pocket. I've only got $200 cash right now. <laughs> I'm just going to look at it for a minute. Only two Benjamins. Mm. Mm. Wow. I'm rich. By the way, they, the two hundred dollars—they both look completely different. Yeah. Notice well, he's also notice he's also flashing his Apple Watch right yeah. now too. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of that way. Locked and loaded, folks. Everybody, check your pockets for real. He's like uh, Sean Spicer. If you watch those press conferences, constantly flashing his Apple Watch. Oh yeah. People are wondering: Does Trump like text him on his watch during the press conferences? Oh, interesting. I bet he does. Like, I don't like what you just said. Oh, and then he tries well, to walk back. Well, many are saying or, that's why Trump wanted his own. He wants to speak for himself. That, that, yesterday, that so was he did the motivation. That apparently, his staff was like, "Let's not do this." And he's like, "No, I'm talking to the media." And but, how did it go? Well, it was crazy. It was a thing. It was a rant. And again, kind of anti-media, took kind, on the kind media. Of, yeah. Kind of? Uh-huh. A little bit anti-media. Clear. Uh, he, um, he took on the Russia issue yep. a little bit. Yeah. And so let's get into some of the sound. I mean, you're not going to want to miss this. Terry, what, where, where should we begin? Um, let's just start at the top. Uh, Michael Flynn was the really big story going on, and didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. Thinks everything's okay. Clip one. When I looked at the information, I said, I don't think he did anything wrong. If anything, he did something right. He was coming into office. He looked at the information. Huh? 
That's fine. Wow, laying That's down a beat. To do. They're supposed to be. And he, he didn't just call Russia. He called and, and spoke to both ways. Uh, I think there were 30 some odd countries. He's doing the job. You know, he was just doing his job. But the thing is, he didn't tell our vice president properly. And then he said he didn't remember. So either way, it wasn't very satisfactory to me. And I have somebody that I think will be outstanding for the position. And that also helps, I think, in the making of my decision. But he didn't tell the vice president of the United States the facts. And then he didn't remember. And that just wasn't acceptable to me. Yes. No, of course. Okay. But he did his job. If, was, the, yeah, if, his if job. the timeline's correct, Trump knew all this two weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it became an issue that he didn't talk to the vice president like yesterday or well, the once, day before. Once they found that out, that was their escape hatch. Is that what it was? And they could get out that little hatch, okay. slide down, I just, get away from. There's it. so many, and then then just calling things fake. Oh, let's look at um, where was this at? Uh, leaks in the media. So he's talking about the big problem with leaks and the media is fake and going. Mm-hmm. I've actually uh, called the Justice Department to look into the leaks. Those are criminal leaks. And Mr. Trump lashed out at the media. The leaks are absolutely real. The the news is fake because so much of the news is fake. It's so important to the public to get an honest press. The press, the public doesn't believe you people anymore. Now, maybe I had something to do with that. I don't know. But they don't believe you. Oh, my God. Wait, what? Well, he he ended up saying the media, the, the leaks are real. Yes. But the media is fake. So when the media is reporting on the leaks, the media is fake, even though the leaks are real. Because his argument was, the leaks are real. But these if, are real leaks, and it's illegal to leak these things, but the media is fake. Because what you're saying is fake. And then somebody asked, so what we're saying about the leaks is fake? Yeah. And he's like, no, the, the media yeah. is fake. The leaks are so real. So what aren't you getting here, Matt? There's a circular <laughs> argument that's not really finishing the whole circle because he won't say that – Right. The, and, me, the media has to be fake, but the information is real. But yeah. the media reporting on the real information is fake. But okay, yeah, now you sound I, like Spicer. I don't yeah. see what you guys, what your beef is with that. And he's, I guess, Donald is. Um, he kind of admitted that he may have had something to do with that, with nobody liking the media and the media yeah, being yeah. fake. But he's not sure. He's not sure, and nobody believing the media. But also, you know, people don't believe Trump. Yeah. And then he said the White House is uh, is doing great. Everything's working the way it should, clip four. I don't think there's ever been a president elected who in this short period of time has done what we've done. So much damage. This administration is running like a fine-tuned machine. Yeah. Fine-tuned. Yeah. Right. Like a Gatling gun. <laughs> it's running like a fine-tuned machine. So. Wowzers. Yeah. Where was Kellyanne? She was not there, did not see her anywhere. Really? How about uh, Sean Spicy Spicer? I believe he was in the front row next to Reince. And I, Bannon was there. You could see his hair at times just sort of bouffantly. Exactly. Maybe that should be his like that's phone his, when he walks into the room. It just yeah. plays on his it phone. Just, on every time he walks in. An interesting point. Trump kept talking about his electoral college win. Oh, are we still back to that? Uh, he mentioned Hillary Clinton 11 times during the press conference. Hold on. Hillary Clinton who didn't win? Yes. Um, which and, was – I don't know why he keeps bringing her up. He's, he, he won, so move on. But he's well, – and no one really asked him about Hillary Clinton. He sort of brought that up himself. Eleven times. And nobody said, hey, tell us some more about this electoral college win. 
Hmm. He brought that up himself. And then a NBC he knows he won, right? Yeah. And an NBC reporter sort of fact checked something that he had said, which was kind of an interesting moment on clip five. You said today that you had the biggest electoral margin since Ronald Reagan with 304, 306 electoral votes. In fact, President Obama got 365 in 2008. Well, I'm talking about Republican. The, pre- the yeah. pre- President uh, Obama, 332, yeah. and George H.W. Bush, 426 when he won as president. So why should Americans trust well, you no, I was when told, you're I was misrepresenting given information? I, I was just given. We had a very, very big margin. The question is, why should Americans trust you when you accuse the information they receive of being fake when you're providing information that's well, not Well, I don't know. I was given that information. I was given, I've, actually, I've seen that information around. But it was a very substantial victory. Do you agree with that? You're the president. Okay, thank you. That's a good answer. Yes. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> answer. Wow. That, that, that was a really good job. And maybe that's the way you have to take him on, is you have to have the facts right there. And that guy just Googled it on his phone. I mean, it's just right there. there. He's just reading off his phone. 426 he told him is what George Herbert Walker Bush had. But he was – yeah, and that was now after – That's a substantial – that was after, only talking about Republicans. Yeah, but that was then, after Reagan <laughs> – does anybody even remember who Hillary Clinton is after who? the first 30 days? Well, yeah. Maybe that's part of his strategy. Trying to keep Just her completely alive. distract everybody with all this other nonsense. Well, do nobody you remember, knows who she is anymore. Well, Nancy Pelosi may have perfected this because Nancy kept bringing up George Bush mm-hmm. for about eight years after Obama was in. Okay. So maybe they're going to relive Hillary Clinton for the next eight – well, eight years. Right. Maybe four. <laughs> maybe four. Maybe yeah. three. Maybe two more years. If she knows that he's only got a four-year presidency, don't you think she'll be there in oh, waiting in the she background? She might be chomping. Yeah. She's, she, she's not going to let that go. Except would they take her back? Come on. The Dems, they, they suffered a pretty big loss. I think anybody's going to look fantastic <laughs> in four years. It's so true. Wow, folks, hang on to your hat. Up next, we're going to be talking about um, how nations survive and thrive in this world of decline. A journalist that, uh, that might have some, some answers for what uh, Donald Trump's been talking about. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You know, sometimes it seems like we are living in a world of problems without any solutions. Problems like immigration reform that have got to, we've got to do something there, right? Political gridlock, Islamic uh, extremism. However, in Jonathan Tepperman's book, The Fix, How Nations Survive and Thrive in a World in Decline, he addresses some of these impossible problems with his own solutions. And Jonathan makes a data-driven case for optimism and is there, uh, which is, you know, hard to find when you think about it in today's day and age. We're uh, excited to have Jonathan Tepperman with us today. Jonathan, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. Uh, so are you saying, even though we hear all this negative news, there is a case for optimism? I'm trying to. That's right. <laughs> um, look, I, I, there's a lot of anxiety, fear, gloom and doom out there. And I understand why, because superficially, a lot seems to be going wrong. And you only need to look at um, Washington these days if you want to depress yourself. But the, <laughs> the, 
the argument that I try and make in the book is that the reason underlying a lot of this fear and the reason that people in the, not just in the United States but around the world now are turning to outsiders, um, populist politicians, and rejecting the establishment is because they've come to conclude that we have all of these problems that governments need to solve, like in the ones you mentioned and, and others, um, but those problems are impossible and our governments are useless. And the argument of the book is that that's wrong, that all of these problems, not only do they have theoretical solutions, but the solutions have already been tried and they've worked in certain places. And so if we want to follow their lead, all we need to do is study what worked for them and make it work for us as well. And it, 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 does it take a renegade kind of leader? Because a lot of the solutions that you bring up and you talk about in the book, they, they, they're not necessarily the typical politician's approach to the world. No, that's right. And uh, the, so the, the book is a set of stories about, about government-solving problems, but it, it's really 10 different profiles of 10 different leaders. And uh, these people varied widely in terms of what region of the world they came from, whether they were Democrats or not, um, um, what historical moment they appeared in. They range over the last 100 years. But one of the things that they, that, uh, they have in common that they all share is that they were um, they were, in a sense, renegades, as you said. They were radical pragmatists um, who put problem-solving first and didn't worry so much about ideology or party philosophy or custom or things like that. They started with the facts of the problem. They looked for the best solution from wherever they could find it. They stole it, and then they applied it at home. And they didn't really worry about whether it was... Uh, something traditionally considered a liberal policy if they were liberal or a conservative policy if they were a conservative. Hmm. I mean, it's in a way, it sounds like the perfect makings of Donald Trump. He hasn't necessarily proven it out yet, but uh, kind of radical, uh, not necessarily you know driven by an ideology per se, willing to be extreme, but pragmatic supposedly. Um, yet... You know, having the roughest 28 days ever, uh, I think, of any president is do, do you sense do you sense maybe that's why he got elected? I think that you're 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 putting your finger on something really important. And you're right that um, on paper, Trump sounds in many ways similar to these leaders that I've just described for all the reasons that you said. Um, and, you know, that's the reason why he made so many traditional Republicans so nervous during the campaign. Right. Because he's not a traditional Republican um, and has su supported policies in the past that um, traditional Republicans wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't have felt comfortable with and that Democrats would have embraced. So just looking at that, you'd think that there would be all sorts of opportunities for him to strike bipartisan compromises and to break the gridlock that we've seen in recent years. Unfortunately, as a president, he's shown no inclination right. to make good on any of that um, and to reach out and to forge the kind of ties um, that's required. But I think that in terms of uh, that, that your, your, your question is so, so important that, that the, people, the reason so many people voted for him is because they were sick of an establishment of, um, and parties that they felt weren't getting anything done. And their hope was that this guy, who didn't seem to care about parties at all, would be able to break with all of that. Mm. It, um, I mean, it really, because we, we have some major issues, and you address them in your book, but immigration reform, 
Um, I mean, I think issues around terrorism and political gridlock, corruption. And and so I mean, what are those – I guess it, it almost seems like they – everybody historically has been benefiting from being able to address the problem or, or talk about problems but never have right. to focus on the solution. Well, um, you know, for many years, American politicians have done just that. They've talked and talked and talked, and they haven't done uh, enough or in some cases anything to address these problems, which is why we had the um, election that we just did, because um, uh, – and this is, I think, most relevant to the, um, you know, to the, the so-called deplorables, to the, um, the lower-income, less well-educated, generally ex-urban or rural uh, white male voters who supported Donald Trump. This is a segment of American society that feels incredibly insecure. And the reason, one of the reasons for that is because as the world has changed over the last 30 years or so and the economy has globalized and jobs have either left the United States or shifted um, to more um, technical ones, uh, politicians have been promising and promising that they're going to help people with this transition, and they haven't delivered. Right. And so people have felt their lives getting more and more insecure, and they feel like the political class has lied to them. Now, in, in some cases, they were outright lies. In some cases, politicians have tried and, and either not been able to um, uh, get things done or have, have been blocked. But whatever the explanation for it, the result is these people haven't got the help that they, they need, and that's got to change, um, or that anger is not going to go away. And this is one of the greatest uh, challenges that President Trump is going to have if he survives the next few weeks, which isn't clear, mm-hmm. um, which is that unless he gets around pretty quickly to starting to deliver on the promises that he made to these very, very angry voters, they're going to turn on him as well. And their anger is not going to go away. It's only going to build. Yeah. Well, and then what seems, I mean, everyone would then love to capitalize on it and say, well, I'll fix your anger. I'll take care of your problems. Um, One other thing that we keep hearing around, um, especially from Donald Trump, is that in a way the media is kind of complicit in this uh, to some point. Does the media... Have they had a reporting issue as well where they too have got caught up in just kind of regurgitating the the line of whoever's in, in power or why are why are the – because you went out as a journalist basically and you went looking for solutions, not necessarily right. just problem talk. That's right. I mean uh, I have to be careful here because as a journalist, I don't want to go too far criticizing my own right. profession. Yeah, throw um, yourself under the bus. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't buy at all the the line about um, uh, the, the criticism that the mainstream news um, traffic, uh, the mainstream media organizations traffic in, in false news. I don't think that's right. right. Um, but what what I, where I do take issue with a lot of my colleagues is that um, we have a tendency, uh, all of us in in the news and analysis business, to focus on bad news stories, to look uh, only for problems, to criticize and uh, not to highlight cases where things are actually working or to think very hard and write about what the solutions to these problems are. And that, you know, in, in 20 years in the field has become increasingly frustrating for me, in part because, you know, I am um, someone who, who myself writes, I, I edit a magazine that's focused on, 
U.S. foreign policy. So our magazine um, often criticizes the Washington establishment. <clears throat> and in my own writing, um, I do that as well. But you know, one of the ways I've always tried to keep myself honest is to remind myself I've never actually served in government. Serving in government is really hard. I don't think it's fair to criticize government policies unless you can come up with a better alternative yourself. And I didn't feel um, or I didn't see much of that going on in either books on international relations or in the popular um, press. And so that's why I decided to write this book hmm. the way that I did to try and fill that gap a little bit. That's great. And I mean, really, you went globally, too. You didn't just try to find your answers in D.C., you went no, around right. the world. This book is, right, 10 stories of countries ranging from the United States to Mexico to Canada to Brazil uh, to um, Botswana and Rwanda and Africa to as far as, as Singapore, South Korea, and Indonesia in Asia. Um, and I spent uh, a lot of time in each of the countries that I write about reporting it out so that um, it would not just be a work of uh, armchair secondhand research, but um, uh, a, a first-hand rep reportage, um, and so that I could tell stories and not just write about policy. Mm. I figured, you know, I could write this book as a dry policy book, in which case maybe a thousand people would buy it and read it. But I had grand aspirations that maybe two thousand people or even <laughs> three thousand people would want to read them. So I tried to make it a book about about stories, and that's yeah. what the the way that I describe each because you know each of these cases of a problem country dealing having a problem and then trying to come up with the answer, they're sort of detective stories in a way, yeah. right? Because the country faces a severe crisis brought on by this terrible problem, and the wolf is really at the door. It's not clear that they're going to survive. And the reason they end up not only surviving but thriving is because one or several very, very smart leaders do the really, really tough investigative work to figure out a good answer, and then they do the really brave political work of, of making it happen in government. And throw yeah, throwing themselves out there. Uh, we're speaking with Jonathan Tepperman, author of the book The Fix, How Nations Survive and Thrive in a World of Decline. We'll be back, folks, to take on some of these solutions, helping you see the good in the world. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Jonathan Tepperman. He's the author of the book, The Fix, How Nations Survive and Thrive in a World of Decline. And uh, Jonathan has written for a long list of publications, including Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and many, many others. He um, has a master's in law from Oxford and uh, has also been a co-editor of the book, The U.S. versus Al-Qaeda, Iran and the Bomb and the Clash of Ideas. Jonathan Tepperman, thanks again for being with us. My pleasure. Talk about, in your book, you talk about solutions and and just different parts of the country that uh, that have addressed solutions in fairly creative ways that, that actually turned out to be fairly successful solutions. Give us an example of, for example, uh, immigration. How have other sure. countries handled the immigration issue? 
The best example, and the one that I highlight in the book, is Canada, America's northern neighbor. Now, it's not so surprising anymore to hear that Canada is a big success with immigration. That story has started to get out there. Um, and the numbers are really spectacular. Canada um, has taken in um, about three times as many Syrian refugees in the last two years as has the United States, despite the fact that Canada has only one-tenth the population of the United States. Wow. It's yeah, and then on a, on a more general level, its per capita immigration rate um, is about double that of the United States, and the percentage of foreign-born uh, citizens uh, and residents in Canada is, again, about double that of the United States. So Canada takes in, compared to the size of its population, about uh, more immigrants than just about any other country in, on the planet. And yet what's so interesting about Canada is that ordinary Canadians, uh, Canadian voters, couldn't be happier about all of this. There's almost no anti-immigration backlash in Canada. There is no um, populist party uh, or, or xenophobic movement in Canada. Yeah. And when asked in a survey a few years ago about what made them proudest about their country, multiculturalism, which has become a dirty word in most places, came in second ahead of hockey. And you know that whenever <laughs> Canadians put anything ahead of hockey, it's a big deal. That's but huge. what's so great about the Canada story is that 50 years ago, in the mid-1960s, uh, Canada was as white and racist and parochial a country as you could hope to find. And so, what's so what I found so interesting um, and this gets back to that sort of detective story aspect that we were talking about earlier, is how that Canada, the, the, a Canada that was um, nasty and closed-minded, could transform itself into the open-minded, incredibly progressive place that it is today. And it's, I, by the way, I should, I should add that although I'm a U.S. citizen now, I grew up in Canada, um, so I may have some bias here. <laughs> My mom likes to argue that the reason for all this is just that Canadians are better than everybody else. That's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> Your mom might be I very smart there. That's the case. Yeah, you know, what, what happened in Canada, and, and again, the reason I think it can serve as a model for other countries is Canada didn't change because it was more virtuous. It changed because it had to. And uh, I mean that in two senses. So uh, in the mid-1960s, Canada, its economy was booming. But uh, the problem that Canada, so it, Canada needed more workers, more immigrants. Right. The problem that it faced was that its preferred source for immigrants, which at that time was Europe, because Canada only admitted white immigrants in those days. Europe was also booming uh, as it finally recovered from World War II. So Canada couldn't get the kind of white workers, um, the white immigrants that it had in the past. So it had to open up, whether it wanted to or not. And so it became the first country in the world to drop all national uh, and ethnic criteria from its immigration policy. But it then did something very, very smart and rational. Rather than go to the system that we have in the United States, which is basis, most of the people who get in here, it's, it, it's based on whether you already have family in the country. Now, that's, that sounds like a nice system, and it's sort of intuitively and emotionally appealing, but it's not very rational because it lets this, this arbitrary factor uh, determine our immigration population, namely whether your relatives had the dumb luck to get in before you mm -hmm. did. Canada decided they were going to be much more methodical about it. And so they, they premised their immigration system based on economic value. They established a nine-point system 
um, judging it, all applicants by things like whether they spoke English or French, one of the two languages of Canada, their level of education, their level of work experience, their age, um, things like that. And if you scored above a certain uh, number of points on this, on this test, you got in. If you didn't, you didn't. And it didn't matter where you came from. And what that did was it quickly ensured that newcomers to Canada would start contributing to the economy in a way that everybody could benefit from because they were creating jobs, they were starting businesses, they were, they were not um, sucking up welfare benefits. In fact, in Canada, um, uh, new immigrants um, uh, draw less in terms of social um, spending than do native-born Canadians. Hmm. They have um, higher um, rates of college education, of high school education. So they, they make life better, not just themselves, but for for native-born Canadians as well. But at the same time, Canada put in place a policy explicitly promoting multiculturalism starting in 1971. Um, and, sending, and that sent the message to Canadians that all cultures were equally valid, so long as everybody was prepared to commit to and, and work hard to become Canadian. And it was these two policies that simultaneously worked together. On the one hand, um, the economic policy showed ordinary Canadians that there are material benefits to having lots and lots of immigrants come into the country. And on the other hand, this multicultural policy, and the, the, which was essentially a propaganda effort by the government, helped sell Canadians on this cultural idea that diversity made the country more Canadian and not less. And these two influences proved um, mutually reinforcing. Was there was there one leader behind this movement? Was did this take place over ten, fifteen years? How was there a leader that that led this? There, there, yeah, there was indeed. I mean, the the, the of course the, it represented an, an evolution. Um, but it, the one guy who really made this happen happened to be the father of the current prime ah. minister, Justin Trudeau. His name was Pierre Trudeau. Right. Um, and he became president, prime minister in 1968, which was a time of real crisis in Canada, because the immigration population, uh, the immigration crunch, the job crunch, um, had become especially severe, um, and and the the country was desperate for new bodies to man its factories and its timber yards. But at the same time, Canada was going through a major culture war. Um, it, it, the Canada has historically been divided between its French and its Canadian, uh, its French and its, and its English-speaking citizens. Um, Trudeau had a French mother and a, a French father, excuse me, and an English mother, and so he was um, sort of perfectly poised to address that. Um, but in in the year that he took office, what this, these long simmering tensions had burst into the open. There there were uh, uh, several terrorist. Uh, separatist organizations that had formed in Quebec um, and that were um, actually setting off bombs and, and, you know, hard as it is to believe today, Canadians were actually killing other Canadians in wow. politics. But as I say, because of Trudeau's own mixed heritage um, and because he was a very, very canny politician, he realized that he could use the immigration effort and he could use this new multicultural push to solve the French and English um, division, as well as transforming the, the in the process of sort of transforming the whole country into a multicultural one, and not an English country or a French country or just a, a binary culture, but a multicultural. Do do you sense and and um, moving forward, like here in the United States, are we are we already so divided in our 
you know, in our beliefs that that creating a solution that could be agreed upon by a vast majority of people is is it even realistic anymore? Are we just you always going to go for fifty one percent? It's a really tough uh, question because uh, we are now so divided as a country. Um, but I think we're not quite as divided as our, as our political establishment uh, may be, and as the media suggests. And I suspect there are a whole range, in, in fact, I strongly believe there are a whole range of issues, um, whether it's jobs um, or even things like Social Security, where there's overwhelming support for action. And if we had a, polit- uh, a pragmatic leader who was willing to say, look, this isn't a Democratic idea, this isn't a Republican idea, this is an American idea, um, and, uh, and, and sort of appeal over the heads of the public, uh, sort of, of the media and the pol- political class directly to the population, they could get much more than you know, 50% support for, for a lot of these initiatives. Now, again, this is something that President Trump has the potential to do, because as we saw during the campaign, and then again yesterday with his press conference, he loves to go over the heads of the media and speak right. directly to the, uh, the, 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 the country. I mean, this is why he's going down to Florida this weekend to hold a campaign rally just four weeks after he was elected. The question is, what is he going to use that ability to speak directly to the American people for? And unfortunately, all we've seen in the last four weeks is he's, is, is he's using it to promote this idea that um, we should be afraid that the country is under attack and right. the country needs to defend itself. It's sort of, I describe it as this sort of paranoid, preemptive defense against um, these supposed um, um, slights and attacks that the country is um, is suffering. The problem is that's an entirely negative agenda, and he needs to come up quickly with some positive things to start focusing on. Like, for example, this huge infrastructure spending right. program, which he talked about during and after the campaign, which would be enormously popular because, number one, uh, our infrastructure is rotting in this country. It is an embarrassment, and it's a big drag on business. And number two, a trillion-dollar investment in infrastructure would create thousands and thousands of jobs that would benefit everybody. But there has not been any mention of this since he became president. No, it's so true. And then and then we end up chasing every other rabbit down the hole that he throws out of his his pockets. Um, Jonathan, we appreciate it. This is great insight. And really, you, you gave us one vignette from the 10 that you focused on in your book. So, uh, man, I look forward to reading more about it. Again, the book is The Fix, How Nations Survive and Thrive in a World in Decline. Jonathan Tepperman is his name. Um, Wonderful resource, I think, to just see the world differently. There are innovative leaders, folks, all over the world. And they even, they create a lot of waves, right? And they're not perfect, but they, they can bring solutions. And as Jonathan was explaining, some hope as well. We will take a break. When we come back, McKenna Baus will be talking with us, our producer, giving us, uh, I think, trying again, throw us a little curveball in life. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. McKenna Baus is joining us, uh, social media extraordinaire. Well, thank you. And uh, she always tries to, you know, take us to the edge of our understanding. Today, no different. We're going to be talking about technology and our banking. Yeah. Like, 
maybe get rid of uh, your ATM card. Wouldn't that be so nice? I'm always losing oh, mine. I am too. I'm always also because I have mine attached to my phone. In your phone? In my phone. Matt just carries cash around in his wallet. I just have his, doesn't my even know pocket. about it. I have it in my pockets. It's, it's just cash falling out of everywhere. everywhere. But the, then yesterday, my granddaughter had my phone, and the next thing I know, my credit cards are out. Ah. Well. So you got to watch out. You might like, then, what some of the banks around the country um, have been starting to do. A new trend that's happening is banks are now making it so you can use your phone in place of your card at your ATMs, similar to how Apple Pay or is it Android Pay? I think work. So you just so you, but you use it at your ATM, Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't need to pull a card out. You You could just swipe your phone. Yeah, the idea is. People, a lot of times, you know, if they leave the house, they may forget their wallet. Right. But they never forget their phone. Yeah. And so a lot of people are looking at this as, you know, this could be really convenient, just one less thing to carry around. And then also being able to use your phone to get access to cash. Because right now, even if there is right. Apple Pay at stores, you, know, you can't always get cash from it. And so, but that's interesting because Apple Pay acts, doesn't Apple Pay act like a bank? Aren't they, tra- aren't they doing the transaction like a bank for you? You know, honestly. So now I'm using. Sure. Well, it's interesting. Now I'm using Apple Pay at the bank to transact with my bank. I mean, I'm not using. I'm using the technology. Well, you're, you wouldn't be using Apple Pay at these. Banks. Yeah, right. So you have to download that specific bank's app, and you can then use it. And that's where one of the pitfalls of this plan comes in. Um, you can't go to another ATM that isn't your bank. Okay. And use that tech there. Um, and so that's cool, you're still though. sort of limited, but. You know, some people think, oh, it's, you know, more secure Mm -hmm. um, than some other options. But at the same time, I'm worried, like, what happens if somebody steals your phone? Oh, yeah. Then they're game on. Yeah, because you don't have to use a PIN for these accounts like you do with your card. But don't you have to use, though, like a thumbprint or a double verification code? Because that's – I think that's how you can set up your Apple Pay. That's how Apple Pay works. And so I think different apps, they have different – security protocols in place mm-hmm. um so that is nice it depends so there's been some instances where it's worked out really well for years um there's a bank that's up in um wisconsin i think mm-hmm. they have been using it for about three years now and they've had no instances of issues but that's another great. woman um for what was uh she just had somebody they stole her login information like her uh. username and password, and then they downloaded the app on their phone, and she, they withdrew thousands of dollars from her account. Wow. So See, that's why I keep all my money some. in my pockets. Yeah. Because then you don't have problems like that. Yeah. Well, another cool thing is there's a couple other banks that are looking into using biometrics now. No, really? So you have to like breathe or blow or my eyeball or my thumbprint? Yeah, so in Brazil, um, there's a bank that they've handled over more than uh, 700 million transactions this way. But you put your palm down Mm. on a scanner, and it doesn't read your fingerprints so much as it reads the exact layout of your veins. Oh, really? Like a vein layout? Yeah. Will it tell me my fortune? That'd be really cool. It tells you your monetary fortune. (laughs) It'll tell you that you will one day have a swimming pool and then it will spit in your hand. (laughs) Do you remember that old one? Yeah. Thanks for bringing up scout camp again. Mm. Always ruining my day. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, well, so so I I love the idea that eventually you can only get your money with a thumbprint. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because then they're gonna have to carry my thumb around in their pocket if they really if they're gonna steal my card and my thumb. Well, I think stealing your thumb might be a little easier than you'd think. There, oh, no. um, there was some research that was done uh, into using your eye is a way of scanning it. Right. It, like, I guess it does a retinal scan or whatever. Um, but the concern was they've already been able to sort of copy somebody's eye in a lab. Oh, really? And when you lose your card, you can get a new card. Yeah. Somebody steals your eye, you know, ID. Oh, yeah. You're... Well, what do you do? No. You, you have to either cut out your eye or no, you, you can't No, you call Amazon and that's going to take days. Tom Cruise got another one in that Minority Report movie. He did. Yeah. Maybe that's where we need to head with things. Man. McKenna, you've got us thinking. This is uh, – guys, keep keep hold of your eyes and your thumbs and don't let people spit in your hand. Is that what you taught us, McKenna? Yeah, no money is safe. No money is safe. Scary, McKenna. Thank you very much. We will take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back. Happy Friday to you all. Holy cow, it's happening. It's happening, folks. You're just inching one step closer to President's Day weekend. It's a three-day weekend. Four if you get out early today. Or, thank you. Thank you. We'll be here all day, folks. Uh, and if, if you're Terry South, who's running out of hours because of an yeah. extended meeting yesterday. I have 39 minutes after the show. i got to get some work done. So I guess we're not going to be talking after? No, I'm just going to be out of here. Okay. Well, it's either that or Don sends me an email. Well. Should we have a conversation about your hours? Let me know. No, it's all right. I get no, it. I'm good. Just went to a meeting. <laughs> it was a good meeting, though. Totally worth it. Um, today, by the way, happy Friday to you. Also, today we'll be talking about how to handle the child without spanking, without timeouts, yeah. without, you know, major mental distress. Tie up your hands and don't speak. And I would say you have maybe a high-minded stand on that. Maybe you're against spanking. Yeah, if you're – yeah. And then you're in a room with a five-year-old for like three hours. Or just, yeah, a small car. A small car, <laughs> confined spaces. It really tests your totally. uh, your will as to what you want to do. Don't make me pull over. My wife never understood why I was so against spanking. She's like, what's the big deal? It's just a little swat on the bum. And I was like, oh, no. No, My dad would use no. a wooden spoon, a spatula, oh, yeah. and one time a smash ball paddle. Ooh. Really? Did he yell, smash ball, <laughs> right when he hit you? <laughs> Sounds so violent. <laughs> he did apologize every time afterwards. That's good. That's a good dad. Uh, it's also, by the way, kind of in, you know, in honor of parental discipline. The, today we're celebrating My Way Day. Because of the song. Because of the song. Also in, you know, in celebration of our president. This was the song that he danced the first 
Are you celebrating dance. Trump? Yeah. Today we're celebrating Trump after his major uh, press conference yesterday and beat down of the press. Technically, he is one of the presidents that we're celebrating on Monday, right? Monday is President's Day. We'll be celebrating George Washington and Abe Lincoln, I think. What's their combined birthday? They they throw them all in there. Yeah. Now we celebrate everybody. But those two were special. Hmm. And And I could have sworn we used to get a holiday for both of those presidents. Now we just get one. Yeah. So somebody's cutting back on the holidays. Well, it wasn't like a day off holiday. It was like Arbor Day. Well, I thought it was a day off. There might have been one, but they didn't give us two. In a few uh, we'll minutes, we, we've got a new sponsor of our, sh- of our show that has kind of a special holiday celebration commemoration for the presidents. They mm-hmm. do something special. A lot of stores – Go out of their way on President's Day to celebrate to celebrate our president and to honor them and to honor them in a way that only Americans can honor other humans. It's very powerful. We'll get to that uh, in a few moments. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be paying attention to? During what some described as unhinged, wild Thursday press conference, that was uh, CNN's Jake Tapper, (laughs) President uh, Trump said former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was just doing his job when he reportedly spoke numerous times with the Russian ambassador about the sanctions levied on the country by the Obama administration. Now, that's a little misleading because I don't think uh, Trump acknowledged that he spoke on sanctions. Right. I think he acknowledged you spoke to him. It's all the leaks that then Trump said were true, which talked about him talking to the Russians about sanctions. Yeah. So I don't know There's who like admitted to what, and it's all confusing. What so, aren't you guys getting? It's so confusing. <laughs> There's not like a, a theme or a message that's going out. It's all just random bits of information. Trump, of course, asked Flynn to resign and uh, said he's going to replace him, and then that guy said no. Okay. That, Former yeah. Admiral Har- said Har- Hayward. Yeah, so he's still like, yeah, looking. no, I'm not doing that. Still looking, Matt. If you're, uh, you know what, looking for a post, I'm not because apparently you don't need any experience anymore in government. Oh well, then I'm in. But you're not a billionaire, so. Uh, <laughs> but I did find two hundred dollars in my pocket. Also, the White House is expected to name a communications director to give Spicer some time to himself. Yeah. Maybe you know, let down the stress a little bit. So yeah. his Apple Watch doesn't tell him to you know cool it and go walk around the building a little bit. <laughs> Uh, the cross, uh, Crossroads Media founder Michael uh, Dubke, D-U-B-K-E, I guess. Yeah, that sounds right. Dubke. The interesting thing is his Crossroads organization did everything they could to kill Trump, the Trump movement and failed. But this is the guy they're bringing in to run communications huh. to the White House. So uh, a media guy. Kind of a never Trump is who he worked for, so where his loyalties were maybe maybe a paycheck. Maybe that's what yeah. he was working for. Yeah, Who knows? Uh, the Trump administration has withdrawn its request for an appeal on the suspension of its travel ban, instead opting to revise the executive order. In a Thursday filing, the administration wrote that in doing so, the president will clear the way for immediately protecting the country rather than pursuing further potentially time-consuming litigation. There you go. So, yeah. We'll just rewrite it instead of wasting time in court. Well, so which is really interesting because by rewriting it, they're admitting... They lost the argument. So they might avoid some of the legal issues that are holding it up now. Yeah. So now they're just going to rewrite it. There you go. Redo it. Across the United States on Thursday, thousands of immigrants skipped work 
and class to participate in a day without immigrants. Activists say the purpose of the walkout was to show how important immigrants are to American society. Census data says that more than 40 million people in the U.S., or about 13% of the population, are foreign-born. Restaurant shops and other small businesses were closed in major cities across the country to observe this. In fact, I think even at the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., they had to have a, a smaller menu because of the walkouts. Oh. They couldn't they couldn't provide the same menu. Uh, the Gizmodo Media Group investigative team has taken to buying highly targeted Facebook ads to steer potential leakers to a new website, tellontrump.com, which lays out a variety of secure methods to pass on sensitive information. Oh, boy. So if you have any, Gizmodo wants it. I think they're calling that the Gizmodo Dragon. Yes. <laughs> One of the most terrifying dragons. I found that to be kind of funny the yesterday. Media. There's now a website, and here's how you do it. Also... Uh, we misspoke last hour. Uh, Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, yes. the Secretary of Def- or Secretary of State, State. He's in Germany. There's sort of a G20 NATO sort mm-hmm. of meetup going on. He registered so late to actually announce he was going to be there right. that they had to uh, make him stay at a sanitarium oh, in a bo- German village known for its hot springs, 30 minutes from where the other world leaders are gathered. Uh, there may <laughs> diplomatic security agents mingling in the parking lot with elderly people in wheelchairs arriving for spa treatments. Hold on, I'm staying where? <laughs> You're staying at a sanitarium. Yeah, isn't but that where got they a filmed, great spa? I think they filmed one flew over the cuckoo's nest there. And they're saying it makes it difficult because counterparts, including the UK's foreign secretary, have had to make the 30 mile trek out to this outlying town to yeah. have a meeting with the new Secretary of State from the U.S. Wow. you got to register early for these things to get the hotels. Everything's booked. You, if you want a massage, we can get you one. But, uh, sorry, the mud bath is being used the, by Ethel. The security agents mingling with people in wheelchairs coming for spa treatments. That was a good line. <laughs> Followed by a Rorschach test. Also, uh, earlier this year, we had, or last year, we had a, late last year, we had a, a story about how a court ruled that a hot dog, about the question, is a hot dog a sandwich? No. Or is it a no. hot dog? Seems obvious to me. It's and not so even meat. The court had to actually take up that one. Now, Bloomberg is reporting that a court had to decide, a federal trade court decided, is a Snuggie a blanket? Hold on. Now, you got to be careful because I I had a whole different definition of Snuggie yeah. uh, as a kid growing up. So because the, the Snuggie the product, that Jeff wears, yeah, yeah, that's like the, that's like the blanket... Blanket with sleeves is yeah. what they call it, yeah. right? See, a snuggie so, was usually what you know the boys did when they'd pull you up by the pants. <clears throat> According to the courts, it is a blanket. Yes, um, meaning that at least for tariff purposes, the cozy fleece okay. coverings so aren't you, considered to be the robes or priestly vestments, and so shouldn't be taxed at the higher apparel rate. Mm-hmm. They uh, went on a point. They, the judges pointed out that the snuggie is promoted by the maker of it as more of a blanket than clothing. It's packaging even calls it the blanket with sleeves, there as we go. just yeah. said, right? And so with all that, it is, uh, yeah, federally, So when it comes to tariffs, it's a blanket. So we can't we, – so when it comes to taxing purposes, yes. a Snuggie is a blanket with sleeves. But if you're a grade school kid and somebody pulls your drawers up your back, then that's not taxable. What's well, a wedgie. That's a wedgie in your vernacular. Okay. Terry, do any of your kid or does your boy, does he put on any of his clothes backwards? Yes, all the time. My girl does it every day. And you know it was just some parent out there, some frustrated parent who saw their kid wearing their clothes backward and thought, yeah. 
let's just turn this robe around and make a million dollars. Well, a lot more than that. And then they're like, oh, this is Snuggy when they turned it around. And there you have it. Because I was going through the features of a Snuggie, and it's like, okay, it's got the sleeves, yeah. The features? It's got a pocket. It's got arms? Why Wait a minute, you, that's a backwards Why were you going rope. through the features of a Snuggie? I was just reminding myself of how great it is and daydreaming about being in one right now. You're on the, the only couch. guy I've ever known that took a Snuggie on a camp trip, camping yeah. trip. I didn't wear it. I used it as a blanket. Oh, okay. Well, and it failed me miserably. <laughs> So there you go. I'm so sorry. Good problem, news. Problem solved. Great, great job. Uh, Rex Tillerson Sanitarium. can be found at the sanitarium in Germany if you're looking for him. You've got to register early. You've got to register early or you're going to lose um, the free T-shirt to the G20 Summit. Right. They're nice. It's and worth, the it's worth the luggage tags. Oh, nice. They ran out of lanyards, too. Oh, <laughs> He just has to carry his pass now. He doesn't have a lanyard for it anymore. Hey, um, <laughs> just a little update. Um, earlier in the show, Terry told us a story about a, a person that found like $8,000 in their pocket. Yeah. So I checked my pocket. In the middle of the story. In the middle of the story, I checked my pocket. There was a sealed envelope with my name on it that was a thank you note with some money in it. Now, in my Thank story, you. Thank you, the everybody. people lost the money, it was returned to them, and then they gave those people a pizza party. Yeah. You found money in your jacket. The only reason you found it is because I shared a story right. that made you think, hey, let's look in here. So I had a lot to do with you finding no, that you money. Had, you had a lot to do with and it. And now you're refusing to share that increase. Why don't we have a pizza party? Let's do it in about 45 minutes after the show. That doesn't count. I only have 39 after the show. Oh. So if, if you run into Matt Townsend on the street and you're thinking about ripping him off and you want to save time, just go straight for the coat. Go straight for the it's coat. It's all in there, folks. You'll get more in the coat wow. than you will in my wallet. True, true point. Um, here's, uh, here's another crazy story for you. They're, they're offering a reward for a thousand pound chicken stolen that was stolen. However... We're finding out this is a fake news story. Well, one of the two stories is fake. Because we were we were set to read this yesterday. This 1,000-pound concrete chicken was stolen from apparently South Carolina hmm. last weekend. County Sheriff's Office said the chicken was over three feet tall and was snatched from a property uh, sometime Saturday night into Sunday morning. The base of the chicken was located several miles away on the same road. Hmm. Okay, but now we're finding out that that was fake news because that news was released where? I can't remember. Somewhere. Yeah. Fake news. It happens too fast every night. Now, NPR is clarifying because NPR will not get caught up in the fake news world. But they have found out that it was actually the chicken wasn't stolen from South Carolina. It was in North Carolina's Alexander County. Now, Now, this... This is a concrete chicken. And it's actually a rooster, right? So it's a male chicken, um, I guess. We checked. Four feet tall with a bright red wattle. Yes. Is that the thing under the chicken? I sure hope so. (laughs) Because I don't know what a wattle is. And uh, by the way, it's um, valued at more than $1,000. But perhaps the most impressive aspect of the lawn ornament is it weighs about 3,000 pounds. Right. So somebody stole a 3,000-pound Now, we checked this object. on the Charlotte Observer, which is the North Carolina paper. Yeah. 
probably of record. I'm not going to go that far. Don't but go it probably that far. is. They also confirmed the thousand dollar three thousand pound three thousand pound figure. So we'll <sighs> go with that story. So we're trying to catch as much fake news as we can. <laughs> And we want you all to just rest easier knowing that it's in North Carolina. If you have a, a concrete – I would say anything. Yeah. Be careful. Chicken, rooster, uh, any kind of vermin. A slab of concrete? Just yeah. a slab. Just sitting out slab of concrete. Yeah. Uh, watch it this weekend hmm. because up to 3,000 pounds, people are willing to walk off with it. I think that was the – the reason why I pulled the story was that there's a 3,000-pound lawn ornament. That's right. That somebody, I think, I think and there's we, a new reality show, Concrete Poachers. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. The other side is they actually think they've caught the guy that stole it. Did they catch him? And if you read the bottom part there, I bracketed, he's not telling the police where it is. Perhaps the biggest question, where is the rooster now? Authorities found the base of the statue several miles away from its home, but the rest of the bird remains missing. When questioned about the rooster's whereabouts, the individual did not cooperate so one where would you put such a thing it'd probably be about two thousand pounds yeah now you're down to two thousand well with a nice bright red wattle yeah you break it up and you sell it for parts chunks chunks of concrete well i hear the wattle is a delicacy in many countries throw it in a soup yeah (laughs) throw it in a little soup of concrete anyway Folks, just so you know, the Matt Townsend Show, we are on the fake news for you. Now, um, as you also know, Monday is President's Day. It's a day for us to celebrate the birth of one of our greatest presidents, George Washington, as well as the service of all U.S. presidents. And what better way to do that than to pull out your pocketbooks and head to the mall, or in the case of our newest sponsor, to the grocery store. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent... Save more, dedicated to the proposition that all men should enjoy big, big savings. This President's Day, honor two of America's greatest men by stopping by Save More. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which abolished slavery in the Confederate States. And now we're abolishing high prices. George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. And if you're the first person in line when we open, you'll win a free iPod Nano. Abraham Lincoln was so great that his face is on the penny. And this President's Day, that's all it'll cost you to enjoy delicious potato chips when you buy two bags. So this President's Day, show your patriotism and your appreciation for these great men by shopping at Save More. Save More, the only store that helps you save more. Well, whether it's a tantrum at the store or an argument over a night out with friends, all parents have experienced defiance from their children. But when it turns into reoccurring problems, many parents begin to panic. Our next guest is the director of the Yale Parenting Center and Child Conduct Clinic. Dr. Alan Kasdan is the founder of the Kasdan Method, used for parenting defiant children. Here to discuss uh, more with us and some of his work is Dr. Kasdan himself. Dr. Kasdan, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Talk about um, edu- or disciplining our children. Are we as parents as, as disciplined and as educated as we need to be when it comes to discipline? Well, for most people, child rearing works out all right, and, and there's no need for special intervention. 
What's different now is that there's an amazing amount of research that can actually help people change behavior. And so this can be used in the home very effectively to handle problems. And it's different from the usual child rearing. I mean, is it we get all tense and worried about it. We see our child misbehaving and we seem to project it into their future like they're going to be doing this forever. But isn't a lot of this just pretty typical, just normal things that kids go through? Absolutely. Many of the things that come on in childhood, uh, some of it's intense. For example, childhood anxiety can be very intense, and so can tantrums and so on. And adolescence, of course, are all sorts of fun things for parents. And just as you say, these things come and they often go. Is it, uh, how, I guess, how do we know when it's, it's a real problem? Well, we, uh, we know by a number of criteria, and the main one is, does it lead to impairment? And that's for children and adults. And impairment means that some part of daily routine is interfered with. For an adult, they're having problems that they can't go to work or they can't maintain family life. For a child, it might be getting kicked out of a social group or not doing well at school and not being able to function. So a little bit of defiance, you know, it's tolerable. But now if it really disrupts a lot, now the child's going to be placed in a class, kicked out of school, and that's impairment. Is it, is it, because uh, I've heard this said many times, that the children, they really want structure, they want discipline, they, they want that as, I mean, they may not act like they want it, they may not even want it in the moment, but it's, it's a healthy part of living, right, is, is creating some boundaries for them. It is. It's not so much that anyone wants anything. It's just that a, 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 loose, a, a loose structure leads to problems in childhood and, and more defiance. However, here's the tricky part. A little too tight and too much structure leads to those same problems. Huh. So and so parents who think that they're really being tough and authority and tough love and these are the rules and whatever, that breeds problems just as much as the, as the, hey, let it all hang out. There is no bedtime in our house. You go to bed when you're tired. Both of those can lead to problems. Interesting. So both ends of the spectrum, too little, too much, too loose, too tight – that's right. It, 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 there's impairment. I, I think another thing I hear a lot of parents worried about is crossing the line, uh, going, making their punishment so severe that it's, you know, they don't want to be called abusive. They don't. I mean, the kids nowadays. I've even had my kids say, "You're bully. You're a bully," and because um, they're learning so much about bullying at school. Talk about how we know where the line is for that healthy versus abusive, you know, discipline. Well, we know. We know an awful lot about that. And so, but the first thing to note is the one that seems counterintuitive is that punishment will not teach children the behaviors that the parents want. Punishment stops the behavior in the moment, but it does not change the behavior overall. Hmm. And so it's a losing battle if one's, there are ways around that, but they're losing battle if you're just going to punish. Now, on your comment, um, obviously, child abuse and neglect are very serious. Right. Whatever, but the problems that children have are continued corporal punishment that is pretty frequent. So pretty regular spankings and pretty regular hitting uh, can lead to some serious problems, and they've been studied rather extensively. Overall, what, what have you found when it comes to the corporal punishment of your children, spanking? Is it, is it usable? Should we be thinking that way? Two things to say. Once in, a, once in a while, a mild spanking, we don't know from research what the effects of that are. We do know from research that you don't need spanking at all to change child behavior. Hmm. 
I mean, that's the point. That's the point. Here's the real issue. There are so many negative side effects that one's risking that if a parent knew them, they'd be a little bit more reticent to punishment. And I think you may know that 51 countries, as of last year, have outlawed any hitting of any child by any adult ever. Wow. 51 countries worldwide. The United Nations wanted the all 190 two or three countries to sign that, and they're coming on one at a time and slowly. But 50, And the reason they've adopted that, because in part, the side effects of hitting are so dangerous long-term that, and parents, of course, as parents, we don't realize that we don't see it. A child cries and we think it's punishment's working. That's no impact mm. at all. But there are other serious consequences. What are some of those consequences? Oh, where to begin? <laughs> a child who's, who receives regular corporal punishment is at risk for psychiatric problems later in adulthood. Um, and these include the full range of depression and aggression uh, and all those things. And one of the best ways to make your child aggressive and get into fights is to hit them. Right. So there's that. Then there's physical problems. Children who are punished a lot with corporal punishment have many more illnesses. And if they're punished regularly, there's a risk of changing the immune system. And so it doesn't bounce back. So over the course of life, what can happen is that these children can die at a younger age as adults from cancer, heart disease, and chronic respiratory diseases. Hmm. Am I saying uh, spanking or punishment is good or bad? It's not about good or bad. Just, I'm giving a little flavor of some of the science. Just, yeah, just look at the data. These are, but you know, what parents do with their children—that's a parental decision, and it's not something that science can can make. But but the the consequences it ends up being the cigarette smoking of child rearing, and we don't realize it because when you smoke a cigarette. You don't really see the cells falling apart, and you don't see the 20-year heart attack and and the 10 years off your life, 20 years off your life. And so spanking is kind of like that. Hmm. It seems to be fine in the moment, but boy, if you only could see what's going to happen. Dr. Kasdan, was the United States one of the 51 states Uh, or countries? No, it, it wasn't one of them, and it really, it can't be in some ways because... In the Constitution, there's nothing about that. And so it's a state's right. Okay. So, yeah, they didn't want to get into that. Some states have outlawed outlawed, um, corporal punishment in the schools, but there are still many schools that tattle children for offenses in the classroom. Mm. No, that's – oh, it's quite the battle, isn't it? And. I mean, like I think you're saying, and you've mentioned a lot in in some of the articles I've read, it doesn't – the punishment and any punishment you use, yelling, you know, timeouts, I mean, these these don't necessarily stop behavior. I mean, they stop the behavior, but they don't change it. You're not teaching them what to do. That's right. And if I might, probably the most frustrating thing of humans, including parents, is that parents, as people, we normally think that knowing about something or knowing something changes how a person will be. Right. So a frustrating is you, you say to a child, you know how to do this, or you know, you know this, and you still do it. Well, in psychology, the technical term for that is called normal. <laughs> and and that is, there's very little connection between knowing and doing. Yeah. And, and so people who have a, a spouse or a partner, they know, that partner knows what you hate. And you still do it. Why? The technical term for that in psychology is called normal. Interesting. 
So what is normal is knowing but not doing. Yeah. You see your child. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Well, the child could say, Mom, I'm being normal. (laughs) You shouldn't expect saying things to change my behavior, Mom, because research shows that almost never works. So true. But, boy, that's where you're going to get slapped right there (laughs) when you're like, Mom, I'm just normal. Research just says I'm normal. Oh, don't tell me you're normal. I want you to be above normal. Do you sense, uh, Dr. Kasdan, are we more intense as parents than we used to be? Well, it's uh, it's hard to say that. You know, um, there's so many external influences on childhood now that, you know, the influence of the parent, one wonders how, if, if any of that has changed, what children can be exposed to now. And kind of those are the pervasive influences, I think. So I can't see the changes in parenting. You know, probably religion plays less of a role. Probably the intact family plays less of a role. There are more single parents now having children than ever before. Mm-hmm. And so with all those influences, family life has really changed tremendously. Yeah, and I'm sure it adds different stresses and Different types of stresses to to life. Um, one of the one of the things, and I and I want to get into it after the break. We'll talk about the Kasdan method for parenting the defiant child. I mean, again, defiance is not. I mean, when I hear the word defiant, maybe define that for us, because again, a lot of what children are doing is just normal. It's not about what you think it is. It's just them being normal. Totally. So so the issue is one is. Does it interfere with the child functioning in some setting? But also, could it be that as a parent, your tolerance is being is being pushed, mm. and you have tried many things and they haven't worked? And so, so it's almost defiance isn't quite in the eye of the beholder, but parents have a threshold, and there are a number of techniques that aren't so hard to use that parents could do to change it all. Mm. Okay, let's do this. Let's take a break, come back. We'll speak with Dr. Alan Kasdan. He's the founder of the Kasdan Method used for parenting uh, defiant children. He also is the Sterling Professor of Psychology and Child Psychiatry at Yale University and director of the Yale Parenting Center and Child Conduct Clinic. Honored to have him on board the show today. We are going to be picking his brain on parenting the defiant child. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Honored today to have on the show uh, Dr. Alan Kasdan. He is a Sterling Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry, Child Psychiatry, at Yale University and the director of the Yale Parenting Center and Child Conduct Clinic. He also, um, through his research, has uh, has put together his own method, the Kasdan Method, used for parenting defiant children. Dr. Kasdan, thank you again for being with us. My pleasure. When we talk about your Kasdan method, um, so defiant would be, uh, any, I guess, anything that's that's pushing the parents' uh, tolerance levels, right? That's true. That's true. Is it? What What are some of the techniques that you suggest in your method, and and, and how do I guess most of all? To me, it seems like when I'm losing it with my kids is when I'm most likely to just not be the guy I want to be, not be the parent I want to be, and really create the most harm for my relationship. Do these? Does the Kasdan method help us keep our head in the game? 
it does. It does. And here's the issue. It's good to think about the following analogy. One cannot teach a person how to swim when they're drowning. Hmm. So when you're in the middle of the tantrum, in the middle of defiance, and there's a crisis, the only thing you can really do there is make things worse or, or just somehow end it and then so what that i mentioned it before is the way to get rid of defiance or tantrum is to do work on all those times when there isn't that crisis so for example we work on increasing compliance at other times Mm. and so when you do that you increase compliance in all situations that apply so for example depending on on uh, you know what you want your child to do you could ask your child to do something and then when your child does it now you could praise in a very special way and then do that a few times maybe for a few weeks and across different areas of the child's life and you build compliance now it's not about rewards there are three ways three components of changing behavior what you do before the behavior how you craft and shape the behavior itself and then the consequences. And we call them the ABCs, antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. Huh. And it's not about throwing points at it or throwing rewards at it, not at all. It's what you did before. That is so, huge. I mean, because we, we don't, it, it seems like, and as a father of six children, I don't. Congratulations. Think, well, thank you. It's, it was easier done than said now. I mean, I mean <laughs> that's the reverse. Um, is but we don't think about their defiant behavior ahead of time. We only think about it in the moment, and that by that time it's already passed. So we ask parents to think of something called positive opposites. For any behavior you want to get rid of, think of what the opposite behavior is you want in its place. So your children are fighting, and you run in there and say, "Why can't you two get along? You're always arguing." Okay, that's not going to work. Better just to. to Think, what is it you really want? I'd like them to talk nicely and cooperate. So we train parents to run in that same room and say to those two children, you two are sitting so nicely, that is so great, I can't believe it. Give them a quick little hug and leave. Is that is that before, you mean, when they haven't done anything wrong? That's exactly okay. right. Okay, yeah. That's exactly right. You, and the best way to think about this, from our standpoint, is if anyone plays a musical instrument, they really understand the approach. And the reason is, this approach is about... Practice doing the correct behavior your parent wants, and that practice changes the brain. So what the most critical concept of this is repeated practice of the behaviors you want, and this approach gets the child to do that. Wow, but you know what? You're not not dealing with the horrible, nasty blow-up moment. Right. No, you're that you, you're that, preventing that, that's it. When the, when the person's drowning, you just have to get them out of the water or save the situation. So, so in that moment, worse. you can make it really worse. If you go over that child who's having a tantrum and you grab them and you say, stop. Yeah. What do we know from research? That the parent is likely to be hit. Mm. And now the parent says, what? You're hitting me? Are you, you can't do it now. Everyone's mad. It's all escalated. No one's doing anything constructive. Everyone's drowning. Boy, is this, I mean, again, this, I guess, is human nature, right? Where, because our human nature. So much of this this is our our natural way of responding. Yeah, because we, we, I guess, we're more inclined to not worry about it until it appears, but by the time it's appeared, you've already missed the bus. So there's something in the brain called the negativity bias, and it's also quite normal. And what it is, is that our brains are hardwired to pick up negative things in the world. Yeah. So you have this wonderful child and this wonderful partner, but every once in a while you're thinking about the non-wonderful part. 
term for that in psychology? Normal. <laughs> so, so your child, you know, nasty today, but you missed all the 15 opportunities in the last two days to praise the child for a specific behavior that would have helped decrease this. And this is why they, they think you're so negative. All you ever notice is what's wrong. And that's normal. Yeah. And, and the antecedent, how you present something to a child is, or to another human being, is really critical. So, for example, if you point, snap your finger, and say, put on the coat, we're going outside, the chance of getting defiance is pretty high. But if you say to the child, please, just to change your tone of voice, please put on the red shirt or the green coat, whatever, we're going outside, giving the illusion of choice, Changing your tone of voice so it's gentle increases the likelihood of compliance tremendously. Interesting. Tremendously. And that's just people, humans need to feel like they have a choice. And again, no one senses it, but if you give choices, and also challenges are in there. We, we, we change, we say to a child, I'll, I'll bet you can't have a, a nice tantrum now. I'm going to pretend to say something that's going to make you get mad. Just pretend, I'll bet you can't have a nice tantrum. No six-year-old in the world could have a nice tantrum after this. <laughs> because they... What's a nice tantrum? You don't hit mommy, and you don't swear. I mean, I, you can't do it. I don't think you do it. And the child's smiling. I can do it. I can do it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> the child does it, and now you praise in a very special way, and then you touch the child in the back, and now you say to the child again, you know, you know what? No six-year-old could do two in a row. I'm sorry. You cannot do two in a row. Interesting. The child does it again. Why are we doing this? We're doing it because this approach is about practice, changing the brain and building habits. You do this for two or three weeks, we can stick, we've, we've done this tantrum game a thousand times. It's not so interesting from our standpoint, but after two or three weeks, we can get rid of nasty tantrums that the parents can't tolerate. And you're just turning it into a challenge, and, and, and humans like challenge. A challenge is an antecedent that gets that increases the likelihood of some behavior. Interesting. Is it? And then you turn it into a game. Then you practice it. Well, we have, we, we, if a child isn't doing it, we, we have something. We would have something called the tantrum game, where we practice two or three times. We say to the child, "This is just a game." And and I'm going to say, "You can't watch TV tonight. We're just pretending. You really can." And you have a tantrum, and your tantrum should be no hitting and no, and then whatever whatever you want to get rid of. And let's just let's just practice one. And the child does it. And you choose it a nine-tenths time. And now you say to the child, that was great. The young child, you have to be effusive. And then you say, what was great is you did this and this and this, and then go touch the child. Now, for sometimes we say you earn a point. But we use points only because it helps parents be better at this. Huh. The children don't need any points. Interesting. And then now you do that maybe once a day for, for two or three days, four days. What happens is that a tantrum outside the game pops up to be fine. And you say, Billy, Billy, we weren't even playing the game. You had this amazing tantrum. You didn't hit mommy. You didn't do the obscene gesture, whatever. Mm -hmm. And now, now pretty soon, in a week or two, that we drop the game, tantrums are fine, and it's over. You're done. So Boy. it's a temporary change in the parent's behavior, but parents have to practice this, and it's a permanent change in the child's behavior. Now, at what ages would that be an effective method? Does that work all the way through high school? Well, the approach overall has been used with, from toddlers to the elderly in nursing homes and assisted living places, believe it or not. Wow. But the way, so it's, 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 these are some things about human behavior and how to change human behavior. So, but but then what we're talking about, we work from very young children all the way through adolescence. 
And things have to change in adolescence because you can't praise with this effusiveness. Mm. In adolescence, you have to be cool. I don't know how old your oldest child is. 23. Okay, okay. But in, when the ch- you must have an adolescent in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. We have, I have a 12 and a 14-year-old. Now, for some adolescents, you can't praise them because anything a parent says is, <laughs> is, is just yeah, no good at all. Cheesy. So you, you praise quietly. You say, Sally, that was really good. And they won't. Some, some adolescents won't let you touch them. They'll turn their shoulder away as if you had the plague. Right, right. And then, so you just do a high five in the air. That's cool. And it works just as well. And and the amazing thing about it, Doctor Kasdan, is there's just a better spirit. I mean, the spirit is of it's edifying, it's loving, it's positive. Well, the nice thing for from my standpoint is we're all parents, and parenting a parenting on a good day can be really stressful. And what this approach does is it makes it easier for parents to get the behaviors they want. And our research has shown that parent depression and stress go way down after we train, after we do this with a child. And family relations pick up a little bit. So the goal of this is to give some tools that are kind of in a toolkit. Yeah. You have them in your pocket, you use them when you need them, and, and, but it actually reduces stress of family life. And I guess, too, it, it's got to impact positively the esteem of the child because they, they are seeing – because you're pointing out so many more positives and you're giving them the skills to handle difficult things. Yes, yes, yes. Boy. But self-esteem is, is given a little more weight than it might deserve. Sure, sure. Because it doesn't protect against mental illness. Against, but, if, yeah, you want children to feel good about themselves. That's certainly true. But children can feel great about themselves and still misbehave. For mm-hmm. example, children who are very aggressive tend to have higher self-esteem. Really? Yeah. So you've got to be careful. If you want to work on self-esteem, work on self-esteem. But if you want to change defiance or aggressive behavior or beating up a sibling... You better just work on that directly. Well, yeah, and and I guess that that helps us be. I mean, the, the, it helps the kids be resilient. They're going to be dealing with difficult ch- people the rest of their lives. Yes. Yes. So learning the rules of human change are probably it's probably pretty important. Yes. What do you um, as we as we kind of wrap up? What would you say is the number one thing, Alan? That that just if every parent could just remember this one thing when their child is being defiant, what would that one thing be? Choose uh, two or three occasions in the next 24 hours in which you praise the opposite behavior. That would go so far to decreasing compliance, to, to increasing compliance and decreasing noncompliance. So if your child does X that you want to get rid of, in the next 24 hours, try to, try to make a special effort to praise not just Praise the child for being a good kid. No, no, this is not about that. Praise specific behaviors that are more compliant with what you would like. Hmm. That would go so far in changing defiance. Is Where can we get more information about your work, Dr. Kasdan? Well, we have a, uh, a website, Yale Parenting Center. And uh, I have uh, two books to help parents with the concrete practice of exactly what to do. Okay. And parents can find that out on the website as well, or go to alankasdan.com. 
A-L. www.allen.com. And that would have videos and parenting resources and articles that parents can have on all sorts of little things that we've talked about. Beautiful. Beautiful. We appreciate your great work there and uh, your insights. Dr. Alan Kasdan, thank you again so much for being with us. We will take a break, my friends. Boy, blessed to have children. So lucky and you know, yet they're the, they're the paradoxically, they can be difficult. But some of the difficulty, much of the difficulty is just us as humans dealing with fellow humans. The principles apply, it sounds like, universally. Stick with us. We will take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. Well, everybody, with President's Day coming up, we hope you have a great President's Day weekend over the next few days. Now, sometimes we forget what these little holidays really mean. It's not just a three-day vacation, but to, to get you started on the weekend and to get you into the festive President's Day spirit, you know, here's one of our producers, Leanna Tan. She's going to teach us about five fun facts about some U.S. presidents. Welcome to the weekend, everyone. If you're lucky enough, this weekend is extra long for you. And if so, I know what you're doing. Planning out your trips to the beach, your next novel to read, or the length of your long-awaited nap. What you're probably not thinking of is the President of the United States. That's the last thing you want to think about on vacation. But actually, the President is the reason we have a holiday in the first place. Not this current President in particular, but all of them, dating way back to good old Washington. Monday is President's Day, and I know we'll all celebrate it by doing whatever we don't get done on normal days, but let's just take a minute to pay tribute to some of these men we've looked up to. Based on an article from Huffington Post, here are five fun facts I bet you didn't know about some U.S. presidents. Number one, Washington's teeth weren't wooden. Yeah, you thought you knew everything about our first president, didn't you? Or if you didn't, at least you knew that he had pearly wooden teeth, right? Wrong. Contrary to popular belief, Washington's dentures were made of gold, ivory, lead, and animal teeth. Good, because I was wondering what could have happened if he'd gotten a little too close to blowing out those birthday candles. Help! Could have been bad news. Number two, Andrew Jackson taught his parrot to curse. Some teach their pets to shake hands or roll over. Others teach them to swear. I want a cracker. Apparently, they had to take the parrot out of President Jackson's funeral because it wouldn't stop swearing. What can we say? Jackson took his responsibility seriously. He was sworn into office and sworn into casket. Patriotic till the end. Number three. Ulysses S. Grant got a speeding ticket on a horse. Yep. He was given a $20 speeding ticket for riding a horse too fast down in Washington Street. Whoa. Talk about horsepower. (laughs) He probably should have gotten his reins checked. (laughs) I didn't even know they had speeding tickets back then. Well, I'm sure he isn't the only president who's been tempted to speed down the streets on his Mustang. But now you know. You make one small mistake in life, like a $20 speeding ticket, thinking it'll blow over. But 140 years later, people will still be talking about it on national radio. Number four. Benjamin Harrison was afraid of electricity. Sounds insane, but this guy was president when electricity was first installed in the White House, and he wouldn't touch the light switches because he was scared of being electrocuted. I know, your first instinct might be to think, would I 
trust a president who fears electricity? But you've got to give this guy a break. I mean, it would be hard to make the adjustment from chopping and hauling logs every day and sitting next to open flames and spitting embers to flipping a switch. Number five. George W. Bush was a cheerleader in high school. This may come as a shock to some of you and a confirmation of your suspicions to others. But yes, George W. Bush was the high school's head cheerleader. Apparently, he'd be the one heading those oh-so-beloved pep rallies and assembly skits. He went from cartwheeling and high kicks to ordering the invasion of Afghanistan. Wow, his life took a different turn, to say the least. I bet there were times he really regretted retiring those pom-poms. That is, if he retired them. As you can see, we get a variety of people running our country. I hope this tangent was at least inspiring in some way. Now you know, even if you've made any mistakes in your life, grievous or extremely insignificant, or have any swearing pets or unnatural and extreme fears, it's okay. You, too, can have a shot at being president. Am I saying that it seems like just about anyone can make it to the White House these days? I'm just saying you have a chance. Well, enjoy your President's Day holiday, everyone. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. And happy launch to President's Day weekend. The day when you celebrate your favorite presidents by hitting the stores, maybe buying a car. Today would be the soft launch of President's the Day. The soft launch of President's Actual Day. Actual launch would be Monday. Thank heavens for past presidents like Abraham Lincoln because I wouldn't get a really good discount on a new car if it wasn't for presidents. Right. Or a mattress. Or a mattress. Lots of mattress sales mm-hmm. this weekend. <laughs> Furniture sales. Lots of, yeah. Forget what they did for the country. But boy, are they helping my back. You know, if Lincoln and Washington knew about these mattress sales, <laughs> they would be rolling in their graves. But if they had one of those mattresses yeah. in their graves, they'd be sleeping peacefully. They'd be sleeping like a baby. By the way, mm-hmm. C-SPAN. I know we all watch C-SPAN quite a bit. I can't get enough they of it. They have a new survey of presidential historians. To try to figure out who the top presidents are by rank. Well, okay, so Trump. No. What? Really? They might be looking at presidents out of office. Oh, okay, yeah. He's only had 29 days. Okay, yeah. Maybe get a bit more history under there before we go ranking more presidents. Because he's the greatest president ever. According to, well, Trump. Well, Trump. Um, So who do you think the top five is? Top five presidents would be George Washington, numero uno. No. Abraham Lincoln, That's numero one. uno. He's one. Uh, George Washington's not one of the top five. Oh, he's in the top five. He's just not okay. number one. Okay, so he's top five. Um, another one would be... Uh, Washington's two, by the way. Historian. Yeah. Um, would probably say FDR. Yep. He's three. Three. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with Kennedy because nope. he was a love of so many. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Nope. Um, Jefferson. But are we are we by what they offered the country, the world? They just asked them who were your top five presidents. Really? Yeah. Um, 
Reagan. No. Madison. Nope. (laughs) You just start naming. Adams. No. Senior, junior. No. Buchanan. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Garfield. So you had Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, FDR. Right. Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, Teddy. Teddy. And Dwight D. Eisenhower. Not sure. Eisenhower. Yeah. Really? Now, do you remember we had a guest on earlier that suggested that maybe Donald would be very Eisenhower-ish? Possibly he was the last president with, that wasn't a politician. Yeah. And non, and kind of taking on... Some issues. Had a lot were, of generals and a lot of yeah. millionaires in his cabinet. Right, he did. Millionaires being the billionaires, the billionaires of, that, of day. that day. Yeah. I never thought of Eisenhower. That's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, the story starts out with where they ranked President Obama. Where was he ranked? 12th. Really? Yeah. So uh, some historians are like, wow, that's pretty high. Others were like, that's pretty low. Well, are you kidding? How, what other what other recent presidents made it I'm in the not, top 15? I'm not sure. They don't give the whole list here. But it, I'm going to bet very few. Some are saying it might be a little too early to judge because uh, historians like to look back. Yeah. On a kind of a longer view on history, sure, and we haven't had enough time to really assess the legacy. Of well, I think Obama's. if you look at Obama, well, some have, some have already assessed his legacy, but he what, was what obviously called to greatness because he won the Peace Prize before he ever he did. did anything peaceful. While he was still bombing countries, it was great. <laughs> it's hard. It's easy to just make fun of him, eh? Okay, that's interesting news. So uh, we will be. That's what we're talking about today, President's Day, as well as. Um, of course, we'll get to the movies with Rod Gustafson. There's going to be some releases. So, so on your four day weekend, you're going to or three day weekend, you're going to want to get out to that. I'm going to watch Tarzan. Why? Have you not seen it? No, I just got it on DVD. Fantastic! It's really good. Netflix mailed it to me. He he swings from yeah, vines. Great. And I'm hoping to finally go see the Lego Batman movie. Oh, really? I've, I've had two opportunities to see it. Haven't been able to see it. Oh. I hear he dies. Yeah, it's really just breaks into Superman? pieces. Superman, yeah. Superman or Batman? Batman just breaks into pieces. Kid steps on him. Yeah, and then he's stuck under mom's corn. Yeah, and mom swears. Yep, it's a crazy movie. Uh, we'll talk about movies. We will also, of course, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Check in with them. Do a hero story that is, I think, one of the coolest hero stories of that we've had in a very long time. It involves Rosa Parks. <laughs> Um, also, we will uh, we'll just be talking movies as well based on a true story. If you've ever seen a movie based on a true story, we're going to maybe blow that up because, well, because they use it a lot. This weekend, there's that movie with uh, Matt Damon called The Great Wall with the tagline, what were they really trying to keep out or something to that effect. Right. And then they kind of show you what they were keeping out in the trailer. And it's not dragons or monsters because that's not true. Right. Was it? It was the, the was Huns. The Huns, yeah. Oh. It's the Huns. It's the, you know, that's why they built the wall to keep Genghis people Khan. out. Mm-hmm. And to keep people in. Well. Yeah, you didn't want Genghis Khan just, yeah. Khan just slipping through. Hmm. Or Genghis Khan. That would be a great way, B movie. Seen that movie. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan meets King Kong. See, there's, Genghis Kong. there's a King Kong movie coming out, and he's like the size of a building, and he's really mean and big teeth and everything. My, Genghis my, Kong. Well, I'm talking about King Kong. Oh. But my kid is really confused because there's this cartoon on Netflix where he's Kong, and he's nice, and he's a kid's nice pet. Nice Kong, yeah. 
And so he's like, Dad, that's not the right thing. And I'm like, uh, we'll talk. We'll talk. See, this is the, you're going to have great conversations this weekend. Right. As well. About cartoons. Uh, now let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Let's find out if Rex Tillerson is out of the <laughs> sanitarium yet. No word on that. Apparently they have meetings, so maybe he's not in the sanitarium. He, okay. he filed his paperwork late to attend this meeting in Europe, and they have him staying at a uh, sanitarium because there's no more hotels for him to stay in. <laughs> Today, Vice President Mike Pence will lead a delegation of Trump administration officials to Germany, I think joining Tillerson, yes. at the annual Munich Security Conference. And his first trip abroad as vice president is expected to focus on reassuring allies nervous about President Trump's comments and actions. Don't think yesterday's press conference right. helped with much of that. Trump's shifting position on NATO, support of Britain's uh, EU exit, the perceived closeness to Russia, and the America First mantra have raised an unbelievable number of questions, says, says uh, Wolfgang Ischlinger, a conference organizer. We're all hoping that American Vice President will give a statement on all of these questions that while we're in the past weeks have wondered, what does, what does America under Trump really want? Pence will speak at the Munich conference Saturday along with German Chancellor Angela Merkel and then meet with EU and NATO officials Sunday and Monday. European leaders will be trying to gain insight into what Trump wants and how much influence Pence has over the unpredictable U.S. president. Yeah. It's probably not much as we're seeing that yeah. he's left out of key issues mm-hmm. and all that. So, uh, 39% of Americans approve of the job President Trump has done in his first month in office, and a whopping 56% disapprove. A new Pew Research Center poll on released Thursday reveals. Particularly notably is the intensity of the public's early views of Trump. Uh, according to Pew, Trump seems to be the sort of president people either love or hate, with 75% either approving strongly or disapproving strongly of his track so far. Yeah, either either love him or you hate him. He's already beat out President Barack Obama's strong disapproval rating, sinking to a more intense low than Obama ever reached during his eight years in office. Well, sure. But Obama was only the 12th most... Loved president by historians. Apparently. We just learned that a few minutes ago. Nearly 56,000 bridges nationwide, which vehicles cross 185 million times a day, are structurally deficient. A bridge construction group group announced Wednesday. The American Road and Transportation Builders Association, known as ARTBA, (laughs) uh, lists the deficient bridges. uh, They include high-profile spans. Have you heard of these bridges, Matt? Throngs Neck in New York. No, but I've had a throng's neck. Yankee Doodle in Connecticut. Oh, really? There's a that sounds bridge. like a dandy, yeah. that one. And a Memorial Bridge in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, that's They're all there. structurally deficient. Great. They're all 50 years or more older. They've had no work done on them, apparently. Uh, the five states with the most deficient bridges, if you live in any of these states, So the winners beware. are? Iowa, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Nebraska. By the way, a lot of red states there. Right. So if Donald would throw infrastructure, some infrastructure money that way, make some states happy. And, f- and finally, a 22-year-old Canadian tennis star, and she's also uh, appeared in the uh, swimsuit edition for uh, Sports Illustrated because they put athletes in there too, mm. apparently. Uh, she ended up losing a wager to a guy on Twitter agreeing to go on a date with him if the New England Patriots mounted a miraculous 25-point comeback. Oh, boy. Right, she was supporting Atlanta, and then she's like, "Yeah, yeah. there's no way." She so got she all made cocky, this wager in public. Bada boom, bada bing. Now you're dating the Patriots. Guy. Won, so of course they did win the Super Bowl. So uh, Borchard, who's the woman, the girl, what's her name? Is Jeannie Borchard is her name, and a 20 year old Mizzou University, Missouri yeah. student, John Gorky, 
went to a New Jersey or actually now Brooklyn Nets game Wednesday night. <laughs> so it says the date with a stranger from Twitter sounds like a recipe for disaster. Luckily, though, when a TM- TMZ ambushed them after the game to ask how the date was going, the uh, Borchard, Jeannie Borchard, the uh, tennis pro, said, awesome, he's a normal guy. He's, he's a regular Joe. It was fun. So they had a fun time on the date. The two seemed to have a good time together. And according to the uh, tennis pro, there will for sure be a second date. What? Yeah. She may have found a match. Oh, and they're a cute couple. Yeah. She seems a little dressed up. She's wearing like a fur. Well, you're sitting front row. You have to wear a fur. Well, he's wearing jeans. Well, he's he's a normal guy. That's great. Can you imagine this John Garkey guy? Like, hey, so where are you going tonight? <laughs> well, a tennis pro from yeah. Canada. And, well, I'm just going to the game, yeah, the Nets right. game. It was the Nets against the Bucks, though. Well, easy ticket. <laughs> they probably yeah. The Bucks do have a guy that I forget how to say his name, but he's referred to as the Greek Freak. Well, that's rude. Yeah, well, he's really good. Do you remember when we called uh, Jeff the Greek Freak? Yeah. Remember how mad he got? Well, doesn't sorry, really, Jeff. doesn't really apply. It's when you kept playing that Greek music on Cinco de Mayo. <clears throat> ah, that was confusing. He's a freaky Greek, <laughs> freaky Greek. He's yeah. super freaky, yeah. He's the kind you don't take home to mother. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So true. Um, that's great. They're a cute couple. Boy, I can't quit looking at him. That guy just luckiest guy Does in the world. he look too normal? He just looks normal. Yeah. By the way, last hour we learned from Yale psychiatrist what mm. normal is. Yes. It's, well, what did he say again? I, you, I guess you weren't listening. Well, I heard him say that. I didn't quite get the yeah. full definition. He, he said it two or three times. So normal is with our kids. <laughs> so you wow. may not have heard it. No, I was He did say it three or four times. I'm working. But he's – so we expect people to change and they don't. Right. And we expect people to change and they don't. That's called normal. Because people don't change. Right. And we gotcha. expect we expect people to learn and do what they know, and they don't. Mm. That's normal. I'm surprised normal. you got that much out of the interview. Because when I looked yeah. over, you were just counting all your cash. Yeah, I was just running through my pockets. Just rolling through your Benjamins that you pulled out of your pocket. Let me morning. just, again, talk about the grace and the goodness of this world. Um, Terry brings up a story at the very beginning of the show yep. many hours ago. A man... His wife uh, took a shirt out of his closet. He had been uh, kind of hiding an $8,000 stash there that yeah. he was going to treat her to an Italian vacation, right. and then the money's gone. Go so they went and found it. Freak. It was a goodwill. They got the money back. They went to give goodwill a reward. They said no, so they treated them all to a pizza party. They all got a pizza party. So at that moment, I was wearing a jacket, which I'm still wearing because it has now become my lucky jacket. Right. And I reach in my pocket and I pull out an envelope that is sealed Mm. with Matt, my name on it, and a little smiley face with a sticking out tongue. And I'm like, this is magic. And I open open it and it's a thank you card and it had $200 in it. Yeah. $200. And I haven't worn this jacket for months. Which is like 15 pizzas. Yeah. So that's what do you mean? Be, what do you mean? It's, it's going to be great when you go ahead and, and make that order, and we all. No, I don't understand. No, 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 no. There's not going to be a pizza order. Well, you were motivated by the party. No, I was. That was that, a great this idea. Other story. Well, we the... were going to have the party oh. at about quarter in, in about 45 minutes after the show, but yeah. then you just told me you can't make it. I have to leave at 39 minutes. It's rough. <laughs> by the way, you know why they were able to find that money? Why? Goodwill charges way too much for their clothes. Do they? They probably picked up the pants and said, "Ah, this looks like fifty dollars." <laughs> I could. So I could nobody bought it. I nobody could buy. It. I could buy four pair. K 
Could you stop fanning yourself with yeah. your cash, please? It's really obnoxious. Did you guys check your pockets? Yeah, I have It's a not phone. even hot in here. Yeah, why do you keep wearing the jacket? Because it's my lucky jacket. All right. Hey, everybody, check your jacket. You could have money. If you have more than one jacket, check two. Like incredible amounts of money. Yeah. That you could buy 15 pizzas for your staff because we do such a good job. It's so true. And you want to celebrate President's Day. Hey, you know what? Um, I, I might do a pizza party someday. Okay. Well, I mean, but don't count on it. Yeah. But there's a chance, very small chance. Did you hear about this thing going on in China? This is kind of sad, actually. <laughs> uh, China officials punished uh, for, for dozing in motivational meetings. Oh. So, and I, I wanted to bring this up. We went to a meeting yesterday mm. that was super motivational. I didn't see anybody dozing. Yeah, I know. We were all attentive. We were and all sitting there listening. Six officials you in Central China. You were very attentively watching the clock. Too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Terry's, to Terry's the... not used to meetings. I actually loved it because it was, to me, it was just fun and it was interesting. It was kind of a... And I'm used to being here longer. Yeah. You like to just get out of yeah, here. I'm, like, I'm out of here. But I mean, there was topics. There was, was an, cool. Like the worldwide takeover of classical music. It's going to happen. This is snoring for the story, not six, for the meeting. Six officials in central China have been punished for dozing off in a meeting on how to motivate lazy bureaucrats. So if, this, if all the meetings you don't doze off in, it's the bureaucrat uh, motivational meeting right. to overcome lazy bureaucracy. Well, they did. State media and local government said pictures of the sleeping officials have received widespread coverage in China uh, in the media over the past two days amid the president's sweeping crackdown on corruption, extravagance and dereliction of duty. Wow. That was a big meeting and they slept through it. Yeah. The Communist Party Discipline Bureau. Discipline Bureau. Can you imagine? On Thursday, named the mid-level officials and said they had to write self-criticisms and make public apologies. Here we call it an oversight committee. Yeah. yeah Here they call disguised. it Discipline Bureau. Just the, tell it how it is. The Communist yeah. Party's Discipline Bureau. Wow. <laughs> I'm from the Communist Party Discipline Bureau. Looking for Mr. Terry South. Oh, no. <laughs> well, um, folks. <laughs> sorry. Did we wake you up? Just go. That was funny. You woke that Go guy up. Go and sleep no more. Yeah. That's or at my... least sleep in a better meeting. Yeah. Sleep in a better meeting. Hey, uh, before we go to our great um, commercials, we really want to thank a brand new sponsor we have on the show, Save More. And Save More, just it's a typical little store, shopping center. Um, but they really care about President's Day. So a little sponsor, Save More. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent Save More, dedicated to the proposition that all men should enjoy big, big savings. This President's Day, honor two of America's greatest men by stopping by Save More. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which abolished slavery in the Confederate States. And now we're abolishing high prices. George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. And if you're the first person in line when we open, you'll win a free iPod Nano. Abraham Lincoln was so great that his face is on the penny. And this President's Day, that's all it'll cost you to enjoy delicious potato chips when you buy two bags. So this President's Day, show your patriotism and your appreciation for these great men by shopping at Save More. Save More, the only store that helps you save more.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Friday to you. And Fridays mean it's, means it's time to talk movies with uh, Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com, which is a, he's a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. We love having him on the show to walk us through the latest and greatest release. And, Rod, are you there with us? I am here. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you sound, you sound wonderful. Yeah, well, thank you. You, you sound you so sound well wonderful slept. too. I'm at my in-laws eating, and my mother-in-law feeds me like crazy. And it, that way I don't have to eat for two weeks after I leave here, <laughs> and I save money on groceries. How great is that? Family taking care of family. <laughs> hey, That's uh, right. So you um, – now, it's it's down here in the States. It's going to be President's Weekend this weekend. Do you have anything? Yes. So we're, we'll have an extended – vacation or, uh, you know, extended weekend. What are you doing this weekend? Uh, this is a long weekend where I live too. We call it family day. That's <gasps> the Monday when you're supposed to take extra time and do things with your family. How cool is that? That's great. Yeah. 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 We, um, so with this day is relatively new to us. Uh, it happened about, Oh, I'm guessing 20 years ago. I think they, um, they made a holiday on this weekend, I think, because all of us Canadians were complaining, well, look, the Americans are getting the day off. How come we aren't? So, yeah. So, yeah, that's so what we came w- up with. We celebrate past presidents, and then we also see it as a day off from President Trump's press briefings. <laughs> so <laughs> well, for us, good luck with that. <laughs> it's, it's kind of relaxing. So uh, yeah, talk to me, Rod. What, uh, what movies are coming out? What do we need to be paying attention to? Well, there's three films coming out this weekend, two of them rated R and lots of violence and sex in those two movies. Um, and uh, But the other one is called The Great Wall, and this one's a PG-13. And uh, this is, okay, so I admit this, Matt, I went into this movie not really knowing what to expect. And at the 15-minute mark, like, so The Great Wall, it's The Great Wall of China, huh. I'm expecting, you know, I'm going to worry. I'm going to learn about uh, Chinese history, and at the 15-minute mark, when about a million huge giant uh, dinosaur lizards started attacking the Great Wall, what? I thought, wait a minute, this isn't a historical movie. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Yes, this is a film that yeah. uh, so is starring Matt Damon, and here's the deal: uh, Matt Damon and this other guy are 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 seeking. They they're mercenaries. They are paid for fighters that have fought in various wars and whatnot. But now they've fa- figured out a new way to make money with this mysterious substance that they hear about. That's called black powder, and they hear that the Chinese have figured out a way to have instant fire that that uh, creates this huge, you know, everything that we know black powder can do. So they want to get some of this stuff and take it back to Europe so they can make money. So while they are searching around looking for this, they stumble upon the Great Wall and meet this, and there's this fortress there full of uh, Chinese warriors. And, of course, these guys get arrested because these people think, okay, these these guys are, are warriors themselves and, and they're up to no good. But then they learn... The reason this fortress is there and the reason that this wall has been built is because there are these huge dinosaur kind of lizards that are going to come and attack the Great Wall. So when they come and attack, Matt Damon's character demonstrates that he has got some value and that they shouldn't kill him because he knows how to kill these lizards. And so this turns into kind of a, uh, well, it's a monster movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and a giant lizard monster movie. 
Rod, a giant lizard monster movie. Is this a paycheck movie for Matt Damon? Because it seems like the type of role that would normally go to a Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is a little. Well, you know what this movie really is, Matt. Is this movie is strategic marketing um, because. China is very limiting in uh, the state there only lets a, a small number of foreign movies distribute in the country each year. And so this is a Chinese-U.S. co-production. And from what I understand, it is the most expensive movie that China has ever been involved wow. in. Wow. And um, it is full of Chinese A-listers, of course, who we haven't heard of. But there are some big Chinese stars in this film and the Matt Damon. Um and the other thing that this film does, similar to the Transformers movie in 2014, Transformers Age of Extinction, which was another movie that you could tell they were doing their best to woo the Chinese government so that they could get distribution in there, is all the Chinese people in this movie are strong and tough and serious, mm. and uh, the Westerners play the comic relief, so to speak. So. Oh, good. good. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's kind of a it's strange little twist. Now, having said all of that, I hate to admit this, but I found it somewhat engaging. I actually found myself thinking, wow, I wonder what's going to happen next. Right. And um, so there is some entertainment value to this movie. And the other good thing about this movie is, I mean, Matt, I started laughing at points in it and uh, just because it's so over the top crazy. And uh, but the good news is um, there's no sex, no sex in this movie. There's, you know, about maybe eight or nine mild little cuss words in it. Um, but, of course, lots of violence with these monsters because there's an unwritten rule in Hollywood. If something bleeds green blood, you can just oh, go yeah. ahead and slice and dice it, unless it's a Vulcan, of course. So if you're very you if you're pro-giant lizard, this is going to be very offensive. Uh, yes, yes, it will be. It okay. will be. The PETA lizard people won't be happy with this, but everybody else I think will have a good time. And, you know, the com the takeaway from this film is if you can kind of go back and remember those 1950s monster movies, and if you got a big bucket of popcorn, I think parents and teens could have a, uh, have a fun time with this film. Definitely not for little kids. They're going to go home and have bad nightmares about, hmm. you know, their iguana eating them or something. But, but uh, for everybody else, though, you know, it's, it's a popcorn flick. It it's really a, is. It's, more, it's surprising. I didn't, think, I didn't think it would go there. Uh, overall, you gave it a B? Yeah, be great on this be one. Be great. Yeah, I know. I was probably I I I was probably way too generous, but right. yeah, I came out of it. I thought, you know, I could really see. I've got some friends I know that would like this movie. Fathers who, if they went with their sixteen-year-old, they come out of there going, "Hey, that was really cool." <laughs> so you know, it's kind of benign, senseless. Uh, yeah, entertainment. <laughs> I like it. I no. In fact, you know what? That's sometimes the best entertainment. Um, yeah, also, yeah. apparently, coming out on DVD is Arrival. Yeah, Arrival. I love that out. movie. Of course. Yeah, and of course, this film is one of the films that's nominated for Best Picture. One of nine movies nominated for the 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 crown jewel of the Oscars, the Best Picture award. And this is the film that uh, where we have more aliens. This time they this time they aren't monsters. Um, these are aliens that show up all around the world in these spaceships hovering just barely above the ground. And what the what the people on Earth need to try and determine is uh, if they come here to kill us or if they come here to be our friends. And so um, we have Amy Adams playing a linguist, 
Dr. Banks is her name, and her job is to try and figure out how to communicate with these aliens and figure out what they've come to Earth for. And uh, there's the obvious top layer message in this film about how we perceive other people who are different from us. And then there's a secondary message, and I got to be careful with this movie not to give too much away here, but the secondary message as well um, is if we knew what was going to happen in our life, would we make different choices mm. to try and avoid the bad things, but at the same time, we'd have to give up so many good things. And I thought that that was a real powerful message as well. Arrival, the nice part about it on home video is I, I had to go through this movie twice to really try and figure out uh, a lot of what was going on beneath the surface. And so it's worth a, It's definitely worth a home video rental. And if you can watch it twice, I think you'll like it even more. Well, and it sounds, too, again, like some pretty good uh, conversation could come from it. Yeah, yeah. I really think this film has got some, some, great, uh, some great ideas that you can talk about, uh, you know, with your kids afterwards, after you watch the movie. And the other good thing about watching at home and parents, I know this sounds like it may drive you crazy, but take the opportunity sometimes you hit the pause button and talk about, you know, what you just saw or a particular scene and 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 find out how your kids feel about that. And, you know, it's a kind of a fun way, a more interactive way to watch a movie. I love it. I love it. And by the way, it's perfect. It sounds like for Family Day up in Canada as well. Rod, thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for your great hey, you insight. you are welcome. Again, you can go find more ab about uh, all of the movies that Rod and the, and the other uh, critics uh, review at parentpreviews.com. They also, remember, have questions and, and topical guides that you can use to uh, as you go through to create better conversations with your family. It's, uh, it's what it's about, really. Families and uh, having a good time together. A healthy, happy good time. We'll take a break. Come back when we come back. Jeffrey and I are going to be doing a little uh, little talking about the concept of a true story when it comes to media. When you when you watch a movie and it's it's based on a true story, how true is the story? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Getting you ready for the weekend. Welcome back, friends. You know, so many movies out there claim to be based on true stories, but just how factual are these films? And do we really care when we come back? Hey, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how true movies really are. And we're back. Based on a true story. Honestly, I don't believe anything that says it was based on a true story. Because, really? I mean, I, you do generally, you know, but the facts, they have to embellish them because there's life's not as interesting as the movies make it seem. You know, it, what's really interesting is right now fake news is making news and it's really a hot topic and people are not happy about it. And yet we go to these films, they say they're based on a true story or – uh, some are even as bold as to say this is a true story. Yeah. Or if they really don't have a claim to how true it is, it's uh, inspired by true events. There you go. And that's when you know really not true at all. Not true at all. Nothing to it. Nothing true about it. 
So some of the creative licenses that these filmmakers will take with the films is that, you know, they'll have what's called a composite character where they're taking elements from all these different people and just putting yeah. them into one character. I guess that saves money. I don't know. Um, they'll mess around with the timelines so that they don't they didn't actually occur in the order that they appear on film. Um, they'll do things for dramatic impact, obviously, mm-hmm. like you said. That's what you want to see. And then there are certain things that are just impossible to know that would never have been documented. Right. Like the dialogue between certain people. So yeah. they have to make all that up, right? Well, um, there are a few different categories of this, and I hope I don't burst your bubble oh. with any of these because I know oh, you boy. love the movie – Rudy, for instance. Love Rudy. Totally true. Based on a true story. Rudy Rudiger. There's a scene where all of his teammates, he finally gets on the Notre Dame team. Yeah. All the teammates in support of him are throwing their jerseys on the coach's desk (laughs) saying they're not going to play unless he can be in the game. Um, And uh, at the end of the movie, just what you did, everybody starts chanting Rudy. 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 Well, Joe Montana was actually a teammate of his. Who? Joe Montana? Yeah, okay. he's kind of an obscure figure. Yeah. Um, he said, it's a movie, remember, not all that's true. The crowd wasn't chanting. Nobody threw in their jerseys. He did get in the game, and he did get carried off the field. Hold on. So, so did Joe think they were cheering Joe, 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 Joe? I don't know. Huh. He was probably jealous. Yeah. Anyway, so that's an, ins- that's an instance uh, where... They just make some stuff up to make somebody seem more heroic. Well, to make little Rudy seem taller. Yeah. Did you see the film Captain Phillips? Yes. Loved it. Totally true. That's based on a true story. Right. But. But what? People that worked with him claimed that Captain Phillips wasn't all that heroic. Wasn't really a captain? Um, They're saying that nobody wanted to work with him. And that he ignored safety protocols and sailed too close to the coast. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like the captain got got them in trouble. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, yeah, they almost make it sound like maybe he wasn't such a nice guy. So there's an instance of the or the filmmakers making somebody seem more heroic than yeah. perhaps they yeah. were. Here's an instance of filmmakers taking somebody who is portrayed as a villain who in maybe real life wasn't such a bad guy. Did you see the film Cinderella Man? No. Oh, well, there's a villain in the film who famously uh, kills an opponent in the ring. Ooh. And they portray him as being proud of that and just this monster of a guy that doesn't really care about boxing. Yeah. And the, the this man's actual son said the portrayal of my father couldn't have been more wrong and inaccurate. They turned a good-hearted, fun-loving, friendly, and warm human being who hated boxing into Mr. T from Rocky Three with wow. no redeeming characteristics. See, that's not fair. And basically, this man, the the boxer who killed the other his opponent in the ring, basically said, "This this haunted me forever." You know oh. that I killed this person, and they made a movie about it. Right. Come um, on. Then there are films that will try to raise the stakes, make it seem more dramatic than it actually is, so that right. you can have a more uh, suspenseful experience. Like you, I know you saw the film Argo. Yes. A lot of that stuff was fabricated. What? You know, where really? they're they're having the chase scene at the end yeah. where they're getting on the plane and oh, the yeah. authorities are the Iranian, pulling yeah. up in police cars. That didn't happen. It was oh. much more smooth sailing there at the end than they led us to believe. Are you sure? Yeah. It said based on a true story. Based on a true story. So, so that means the basis of the film 
So it's somewhere true. in the movie, there was some truth. There's some truth there. And then this is the biggest offender that I know of. Have you seen Fargo? N- no. Okay. No. Fargo, in, uh, it centers around a murder and this uh, pregnant cop who's trying to solve the murder. Wow. Okay. okay. And at the very beginning of the movie, the most you'll ever see at the beginning of a movie is based on a true story. And then maybe at the end you'll see, like, these characters are, you know, fictitious, yada, yada, yada. At the beginning of this movie it says, this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Huh. And yet... Not really. As they've interviewed the filmmakers over the years, the story of how close to the truth this is changes over time. Until in 2015, Joel Cohen, who said... The story was completely made up. Or oh. or as we like to say, the only thing true about it is that it's a story. See, that's what put the far in Fargo. Yep. Far from the truth. Yes. And now they're, they use the same uh, slogan or they use the same uh, pre-credit disclaimer on the TV show Fargo, Do even they, though it's completely false. They say it's all based on a true story. Uh, well, there's a guy in the movie who gets put in a wood chipper, and I think they read a news story where somebody put somebody in a wood chipper. So, I mean, just because you put somebody in a wood chipper doesn't mean it's coming from the same story. <laughs> and the, here's something interesting because we have been talking about fake news. Yeah. And there's an area here where the movie world and political news and all that interweaves because there's a new movie that came out today that Rod did not interview be- – or. Uh, Review because it's rated R. It's called a case for or a cure for wellness, and it's about this worker who goes to find his CEO at this wellness center in the Swiss Alps. Okay, and <laughs> so to promote the movie, the filmmakers fabricated a story that said that Trump and Putin met up prior to the election at this Swiss Alps uh, resort. Oh yeah, and so, they so everyone had, was messed. They were like. See, they were meeting together to There's promote footage. their movie. It's a true movie. It's a true right. story. So they came out today with an article and apologized for See? completely lying about it. See, by the way, that is a story you can't believe. But have you ever heard of the movie Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, the movie? With uh, Johnny Depp? Yeah. Apparently that is totally true. So Interesting. Yeah. Do you care – when you go to the movies, do you care that they've taken artistic liberties – to make it a more pleasurable, entertaining, suspenseful. No, but I also have to then tell myself, don't think of that as history in the making, right? Like I can't pretend like what I see is really take it true. with a grain of salt. Like for example, I, yeah, you, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're the one that told me this that The Hobbit was based on a true story. Bilbo Baggins, or some guy named Bilbo, was kind of a lonelier man. Well, uh, there is a place called New Zealand. Yeah. And they uh, it's very green. Mm-hmm. And there are some people out there with very hairy feet. Okay. So those parts of it are extremely true. <laughs> and shorter. Shorter folk. Right? Okay. Good. Well, good job. Jeffrey, thank you for helping us digest the based on a true story story. Now let's shoot it to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. We'll take a break, actually. Come back and uh, see what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And just 13 minutes from now, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Getting you ready for the weekend, folks. 
Welcome back, friends. It's that time. It's the time when we go down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, and find out what they are planning and preparing for their show, which takes place in about 11 minutes. Hello, gentlemen. Sports! <laughs> we will be discussing that. You're going to talk about sports this time, huh? Wait, yes. Listen, which sports team sports the hardest to win the game match thing? The fastest. That matters the most in the sports world. That matters world the most in uh, the sports world. Uh, that's that's a great tease, that's you guys. coming up. Coming up. Coming up. It's just ten and a half minutes. Yes. Also, what's the greatest Adam Sandler movie? Ooh. The Wedding ago, Singer. Billy Ooh. Madison came out today. No. Ooh. Oh, Happy really? Happy Gilmore. Happy, Happy Gilmore Billy is the Madison best. Billy Madison Gore. Yeah. Came out. Oh, that's a good. You know what? Talk about high quality movies. Talk about <laughs> good. <laughs> Talk about mediocre movies since then. Is so that we, we've had uh, on our on our IMDb page? Okay, maybe yeah, yeah. We've talked fact, about I'm going to go before. check you guys out right this we, minute. We have a review of somebody complaining that we talk about movies too much. And so, so what have we done? We we've just talk embraced about, that. We're going to talk we about movies. We will talk about movies at the beginning on of the show. this show. A little bit. There's a <laughs> lot. Listen, okay, let's just get into it, okay? Yeah. BYU beats San Diego. Blah, 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 blah. BYU plays St. Mary's tomorrow. 22nd ranked team in the country. Awesome. <sighs> We're going to discuss where St. Mary's ranks among the BYU sports rivalries. Utah's mm. obviously number one. But where does St. Mary's fit in that? We'll discuss. That's Chris, cool. Chris Miles, former BYU basketball player, will come in. He'll talk about the San Diego win and how BYU takes down St. Mary's. Now, you might Tomorrow. think, Big game. really, St. Mary's is that much of a rival? It hasn't taken long to stoke the flame of what really goes into a rivalry series for BYU. There have been some epic season-changing moments that have taken place between the Gales oh. and the Cougars. You have to have reasons to hate. Yeah. There are nicknames dislike. involved with some of these games, right? It's crazy. Yeah. Are they appropriate to use on air? Yeah, uh, the Dell yes. of a Dagger. Oh, yeah, that one yeah. I hated. Right? That, yeah. That is, that's the launching the, point. That's the moment the rivalry was created. That's the moment. Man. Yeah, so we'll, we'll discuss that. There's a lot going on. It's uh, going to get The ugly. baseball season starts today. Okay. At Georgia Tech, number 21, the Batcats on the road. Season opens today. Awesome. Uh, men's volleyball in action. They're third in the country. They play tonight. Assistant coach Jalen Reyes will be in studio. The league is going crazy. We'll talk about uh, men's volleyball. Hey, I heard, by the way, just a little fun, I heard about you guys and BYU volleyball and ESPN and how revered you all are. Oh, wait, what? Just a little, tell us more, man. It's a little inside scoop. Something great about us? ESPN? What is it? Well, you know, you'll have to talk to Michael Miner. Okay. Just okay. you guys are loved, All right. beloved. Hey, by the we way, have, we have fun. I just went on your IMDb page and yeah, gave you yeah. a big rating of a six point eight. Hey, thank you for that. You why, are so welcome, my cramp- friends. Why are you cramping our style, bro? <laughs> you guys have a nine point four rating on. And how many ratings are on that page right now? Two. Spencer's and well, Jeremy's. Sixty six. Sixty six. Sixty six ratings. I tried to rate it, but Rude. now I have to sign in. Oh, I love brother. that Dennis Pitta is still listed as one of the stars. Yeah. <laughs> Pitta, my rival. Pitta, your rival. rivals. Hey, question for you, by the way. Uh, actually, a point. Today, one thing you might want to do is check in your pocket for money. Because today I wore a jacket and Terry was telling a story about money and how these this guy threw $8,000 away in his pocket. And we went and found it and tracked it down. But I checked my pocket. And there was a sealed envelope 
a thank you letter, and it had $200 in it. Mm, So check your pocket and check your friend's pockets for cash today. Just a little advice from Dr. Matt. Okay. 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 All right. I appreciate good advice. Hey, and President's Day weekend, what are you doing? Sorry, is that this Pres- week? President's holiday weekend? That, day? Um, I believe we have a live show on Monday. We have a live because show that's what we do, man. man what alive. better way to honor the presidents than to have live sports programming? Yeah, you can either do that or you can go buy a new car on President's Day for a special. It is that weekend, right? I just want a massive bow associated with the car. I'm always like, where'd they get that bow? If I, Zero if... percent interest for 84 months. 84 months. It's an expensive bow. <laughs> if if I get a new car months. and a new bow, I'll bring it to you, Jerem. I love it. Because I love you. I know you do. Hey, um, okay, anything else on the show that we need to be paying attention to? You've only no. got six minutes to... You know, well, yeah, we've we've got a lot going into this show, man. I'm stoked. Energy's high. Rivalries good. always bring out the, the hate totally. is flowing. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> the hate is flowing. Yes, that's scary. We might call Max Hall just to get his thoughts. Maybe, Who knows? Maybe that's not <laughs> a strong enough word, Jeremy. How about loathing, <gasps> disdain, Ooh. disdain, absolute disgust? You guys, play Metallica in, quick. This is intense. If only we could. If only we could just throw up some Metallica. <laughs> oh, but we can't. Anyway. We ain't got no right. But you know what? J- Jeff will throw up a sound effect that might be just Let's as hear. powerful. Jeff, Let's throw hear. us up a sound effect. Just one that is like, ma- like Metallica. He's thinking. Has the exact same effect. Like fingernails on a chalkboard. Jeremy Jordan. Exit <laughs> All right, boys. Have a great show. Knock them dead. Keep okay. us, make us proud, okay? You got it, brother. Peace out, yo. Boy. You you could, it was Metallica. I didn't, I didn't have gone, any Metallica you, you on could, here. You could have gone anywhere, but you went to Jeremon Sachs. I did it my way. It is, by the way, my way day. There it is, the chairman. What a guy. What pipes. Oh, and by the way, deeply burned, even etched into your brain, the first dance of Donald Trump and Melania Trump to this song. So are people not going to listen to this song anymore? Well, why would you when you could watch it in all of its, you know, magnificence? The Trumpster. Hey, uh, a couple of stories for you as we uh, as we wrap up this week. We call it empty news. A man sues over repeated school robocalls. You ever get those calls from your kid's school? Your child missed another day in school. You know, a South Florida man is so annoyed by the robocalls from Miramar High School that he's suing the school district. In a federal lawsuit this week, Willie Willis from Willy Wonka Factory. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Willis, uh, who does not have a child attending the Broward County School, claims more than two dozen automated calls since September have caused him a significant amount of anxiety, frustration, and annoyance. <laughs> He's demanding a $25,000 uh, $25, from the school district. Willis was annoyed, harassed, and inconvenienced and deserves up to $500 for every phone call to his cell phone, according to the lawsuit. You know? 
again, like think about it. Like what if you did have a kid that had a hard time getting to school and not only were you getting called by his school but by another school that your kid doesn't even go to? That's like double the problem. I get calls every day from telemarketers or from automated machines. Yeah. I gave him your number. Hmm. You know how they ask you, hey, we'll give you like 25% off if you'll refer a friend. I always refer you. Maybe that's how you got that $200. It's exactly. It's a referral fee. By the way, if you want Jeff's number, it's 1-855-CHAT-JEFF. It's beautiful. As we like to uh, end the show with a hero story, this honestly one of the coolest stories I think out in the last week or two. Uh, Little Caesars founder quietly paid the rent of Rosa Parks. Listen to this story. The death of Mike Illich, he's the founder of Little Caesars, has brought back into the public eye a little-known story about his hometown philanthropy in Detroit. Back in 1994, he began covering the rent for civil rights icon Rosa Parks. That year, Parks had been robbed and assaulted in her central Detroit home at the age of 81, and a local judge and real estate developer worked on finding her a safer home, recounts uh, AI.com, citing in the 2014 story in Sports Business Daily. Illich got wind of the plan and said he'd pay Parks' rent in the riverfront apartments. The older story has a photo of the judge holding the first $2,000 check in 1994. Just one of the many, the story quotes Judge Damon Keith as saying, Illich owned the city's uh, Detroit Tigers and the Red Wings sports franchises, and he brought his pizza chain corporate offices, Little Caesars Pizza, to Detroit as well. But of all the incredible things he has done for the city, the people, what he did for Rosa Parks stands out as the best thing ever. So... A special tribute to uh, Mike Illich, founder of Little Caesars, who, again, took care of not just, you know, an icon in the civil rights movement, but maybe more importantly, just a fellow human being. And that's all it takes to be a hero is just to look out for the fellow human beings. That's why we do the show, to help you uh, see the good in the world and recognize you're part of that good. We can't do it without you. If you want to look us up and, and find more of the past shows, just go to iTunes, to TuneIn, to Stitcher. Look us up at BYURadio.org as well. We try to give you the best content we can, and we'll be back uh, next Tuesday with more information, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until then, make it a great one, folks. We'll talk again Monday.